Chapter Fifteen of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen, Number Thirty Four and Number Twenty Seven. Dante passed through all the stages of torture natural to prisoners in suspense. He was sustained at first by that pride of conscious innocence which is the sequence to hope. Then he began to doubt his own innocence which justified in some measure the governor's belief in his mental alienation. And then, relaxing his sentiment of pride, he addressed his supplications, not to God, but to man. God is always the last resource. Unfortunates who ought to begin with God do not have any hope in him till they have exhausted all other means of deliverance. Dante asked to be removed from his present dungeon into another, for a change, however disadvantageous, was still a change, and would afford him some amusement. He entreated to be allowed to walk about, to have fresh air, books, and writing materials. His requests were not granted, but he went on asking all the same. He accustomed himself to speaking to the new jailer, although the latter was, if possible, more taciturn than the old one, but still to speak to a man, even though mute, was something. Dante spoke for the sake of hearing his own voice. He had tried to speak when alone, but the sound of his voice terrified him. Often, before his captivity, Dante's mind had revolted at the idea of assemblages of prisoners made up of thieves, vagabonds, and murderers. He now wished to be amongst them, in order to see some other faces besides that of his jailer. He sighed for the galleys, with the infamous costume, the chain, and the brand on the shoulder. The galley slaves breathed the fresh air of heaven, and saw each other. They were very happy. He besought the jailer one day to let him have a companion, were it even the mad abbe. The jailer, though rough and hardened by the constant sight of so much suffering, was yet a man. At the bottom of his heart he had often had a feeling of pity for this unhappy young man who suffered so, and he laid the request of number 34 before the governor. But the latter sapiently imagined that Dante wished to conspire or attempt an escape, and refused his request. Dante had exhausted all human resources, and he then turned to God. All the pious ideas that had been so long forgotten returned. He recollected the prayers his mother had taught him, and discovered a new meaning in every word, for in prosperity prayers seem but a mere medley of words until misfortune comes and the unhappy sufferer first understands the meaning of the sublime language in which he invokes the pity of heaven. He prayed and prayed aloud, no longer terrified at the sound of his own voice, for he fell into a sort of ecstasy. He laid every action of his life before the Almighty, proposed tasks to accomplish, and at the end of every prayer introduced the entreaty oftener addressed to man than to God, Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. Yet in spite of his earnest prayers, Dante remained a prisoner. Then gloom settled heavily upon him. Dante was a man of great simplicity of thought, and without education. He could not therefore in the solitude of his dungeon traverse in mental vision the history of the ages, bring to life the nations that had perished, and rebuild the ancient cities so vast and stupendous in the light of the imagination, and that pass before the eye glowing with celestial colours 
in Martin's Babylonian pictures. He could not do this, he whose past life was so short, whose present so melancholy, and his future so doubtful. Nineteen years of light to reflect upon in eternal darkness. No distraction could come to his aid. His energetic spirit, that would have exulted in thus revisiting the past, was imprisoned like an eagle in a cage. He clung to one idea, that of his happiness, destroyed without apparent cause by an unheard-of fatality. He considered and reconsidered this idea, devoured it, so to speak, as the implacable Udrolino devours the skull of Archbishop Roger in the Inferno of Dante. Rage supplanted religious fervour. Dante uttered blasphemies that made his jailer recoil with horror, dashed himself furiously against the walls of his prison, wreaked his anger upon everything and chiefly upon himself, so that the least thing, a grain of sand, a straw or a breath of air that annoyed him, led to paroxysms of fury. Then the letter that Villefort had showed to him recurred to his mind, and every line gleamed forth in fiery letters on the wall, like the Menetekel Aparsim of Belshazzar. He told himself that it was the enmity of man and not the vengeance of heaven that had thus plunged him into the deepest misery. He consigned his unknown persecutors to the most horrible tortures he could imagine and found them all insufficient, because after torture came death, and after death, if not repose, at least the boon of unconsciousness. By dint of constantly dwelling on the idea that tranquillity was death, and if punishment were the end in view other tortures than death must be invented, he began to reflect on suicide. Unhappy he who, on the brink of misfortune, broods over ideas like these. Before him is a dead sea that stretches in Asia calm before the eye, but he who unwarily ventures within its embrace finds himself struggling with a monster that would drag him down to perdition. Once thus ensnared, unless the protecting hand of God snatch him thence, all is over, and his struggles but tend to hasten his destruction. This state of mental anguish is, however, less terrible than the sufferings that proceed, or the punishment that possibly will follow. There is a sort of consolation at the contemplation of the yawning abyss, at the bottom of which lie darkness and obscurity. Edmond found some solace in these ideas. All his sorrows, all his sufferings, with their train of gloomy spectres, fled from his cell when the angel of death seemed about to enter. Dante reviewed his past life with composure, and, looking forward with terror to his future existence, chose that middle line that seemed to afford him a refuge. Sometimes said he, in my voyage, when I was a man and commanded other men, I have seen the heavens overcast, the sea rage and foam, the storm arise, and like a monstrous bird, beating the two horizons with its wings, then I felt that my vessel was a vain refuge, that trembled and shook before the tempest. Soon the fury of the waves and the sight of the sharp rocks announced the approach of my death. And death then terrified me, and I used all my skill and intelligence as a man and a sailor to struggle against the wrath of God. But I did so because I was happy, 
because I had not courted death, because to be cast upon a bed of rocks and seaweed seemed terrible, because I was unwilling that I, a creature made for the service of God, should serve for food to the gulls and ravens. But now it is different. I have lost all that bound me to life. Death smiles and invites me to repose. I die after my own manner. I die exhausted and broken-spirited as I fall asleep when I have paced three thousand times around my cell. No sooner had this idea taken possession of him than he became more composed, arranged his couch to the best of his power, ate little and slept less, and found existence almost supportable, because he felt that he could throw it off at pleasure like a worn-out garment. Two methods of self-destruction were at his disposal. He could hang himself with his handkerchief to the window bars, or refuse food and die of starvation. But the first was repugnant to him. Dante had always entertained the greatest horror of pirates who were hung up to the yardarm. He would not die by what seemed an infamous death. He resolved to adopt the second, and began that day to carry out his resolve. Nearly four years had passed away. At the end of the second, he had ceased to mark the lapse of time. Dante said, I wish to die, and had chosen the manner of his death, and fearful of changing his mind, he had taken an oath to die. When my morning and evening meals are brought, thought he, I will cast them out of the window, and they will think that I have eaten them. He kept his word, Twice a day he cast out, through the barred aperture, the provisions his jailer brought him, at first gaily, then with deliberation, and at last with regret. Nothing but the recollection of his oath gave him strength to proceed. Hunger made viands once repugnant, now acceptable. He held a plate in his hand for an hour at a time, and gazed thoughtfully at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, of black and mouldy bread. It was the last yearning for life, contending with the resolution of despair. Then his dungeon seemed less sombre, his prospects less desperate. He was still young. He was only four or five and twenty. He had nearly fifty years to live. What unforeseen events might not open his prison door and restore him to liberty? Then he raised to his lips the repast that, like a voluntary tantalus, he refused himself, but he thought of his oath, and he would not break it. He persisted until at last he had not sufficient strength to rise and cast his supper out of the loophole. The next morning he could not see or hear. The jailer feared he was dangerously ill. Edmond hoped he was dying. Thus the day passed away. Edmund felt a sort of stupor creeping over him, which brought with it a feeling almost of content. The gnawing pain at his stomach had ceased. His thirst had abated. When he closed his eyes, he saw myriads of lights dancing before them like the will-o'-the-wisps that play about the marshes. It was the twilight of that mysterious country called Death. Suddenly, about nine o'clock in the evening, Edmund heard a hollow sound in the wall against which he was lying. So many loathsome animals inhabited the prison that their noise did not in general awake him. But whether abstinence had quickened his faculties, or whether the noise was really louder than usual, 
Edmond raised his head and listened. It was a continual scratching as if made by a huge claw, a powerful tooth or some iron instrument attacking the stones. Although weakened, the young man's brain instantly responded to the idea that haunts all prisoners. Liberty. It seemed to him that heaven had at length taken pity on him and had sent this noise to warn him on the very brink of the abyss. Perhaps one of those beloved ones he had so often thought of was thinking of him and striving to diminish the distance that separated them. No, no, doubtless he was deceived, and it was but one of those dreams that forerun death. Edmond still heard the sound. It lasted nearly three hours. He then heard a noise of something falling, and all was silent. Some hours afterwards it began again, nearer and more distinct. Edmund was intensely interested. Suddenly the jailer entered. For a week since he had resolved to die, and during the four days that he had been carrying out his purpose, Edmund had not spoken to the attendant, had not answered him when he inquired what was the matter with him, and turned his face to the wall when he looked too curiously at him. But now the jailer might hear the noise and put an end to it, and so destroy a ray of something like hope that soothed his last moments. The jailer brought him his breakfast. Dante raised himself up and began to talk about everything, about the bad quality of the food, about the coldness of his dungeon, grumbling and complaining in order to have an excuse for speaking louder and wearying the patience of his jailer, who out of kindness of heart had brought broth and white bread for his prisoner. Fortunately, he fancied that Dante was delirious, and placing the food on the rickety table, he withdrew. Edmond listened, and the sound became more and more distinct. There can be no doubt about it, thought he. It is some prisoner who is striving to obtain his freedom. Oh, if I only were there to help him! Suddenly another idea took possession of his mind, so used to misfortune that it was scarcely capable of hope. The idea that the noise was made by workmen the governor had ordered to repair the neighbouring dungeon. It was easy to ascertain this, but how could he risk the question? It was easy to call his jailer's attention to the noise and watch his countenance as he listened, but might he not by this means destroy hopes far more important than the short-lived satisfaction of his own curiosity? Unfortunately, Edmond's brain was still so feeble that he could not bend his thoughts to anything in particular. He saw but one means of restoring lucidity and clearness to his judgment. He turned his eyes towards the soup which the jailer had brought, rose, staggered towards it, raised the vessel to his lips and drank off the contents with a feeling of indescribable pleasure. He had often heard that shipwrecked persons had died through having eagerly devoured too much food. Edmond replaced on the table the bread he was about to devour, and returned to his couch. He did not wish to die. He soon felt that his ideas became again collected. He could think, and strengthen his thoughts by reasoning. Then he said to himself, I must put this to the test, but without compromising anybody. If it is a workman, I need but knock against the wall, and he will cease to work, in order to find out who is knocking, and why he does so. But as his occupation is sanctioned by the governor, he will soon resume it. 
If, on the contrary, it is a prisoner, the noise I will make will alarm him. He will cease and not begin again until he thinks everyone is asleep. Edmond rose again, but this time his legs did not tremble and his sight was clear. He went to a corner of his dungeon, detached a stone, and with it knocked against the wall where the sound came. He struck thrice. At the first blow, the sound ceased, as if by magic. Edmond listened intently. An hour passed, two hours passed, and no sound was heard from the wall. All was silent there. Full of hope, Edmund swallowed a few mouthfuls of bread and water, and thanks to the vigour of his constitution, found himself well-nigh recovered. The day passed away in utter silence. Night came without recurrence of the noise. "'It is a prisoner,' said Edmund joyfully. The night passed in perfect silence. Edmond did not close his eyes. In the morning the jailer brought him fresh provisions. He had already devoured those of the previous day. He ate these, listening anxiously for the sound, walking round and round his cell, shaking the iron bars of the loophole, restoring vigour and agility to his limbs by exercise, and so preparing himself for his future destiny. At intervals he listened to learn if the noise had not begun again, and grew impatient at the prudence of the prisoner, who did not guess he had been disturbed by a captive as anxious for liberty as himself. Three days passed. Seventy-two long, tedious hours, which he counted off by minutes. At length, one evening, as the jailer was visiting him for the last time that night, Dante, with his ear for the hundredth time at the wall, fancied he heard an almost imperceptible movement among the stones. He moved away, walked up and down his cell to collect his thoughts, and then went back and listened. The matter was no longer doubtful. Something was at work on the other side of the wall. The prisoner had discovered the danger, and had substituted a lever for a chisel. Encouraged by this discovery, Edmund determined to assist the indefatigable labourer. He began by moving his bed and looking around for anything with which he could pierce the wall, penetrate the moist cement, and displace a stone. He saw nothing. He had no knife or sharp instrument. The window grating was of iron, but he had too often assured himself of its solidity. All his furniture consisted of a bed, a chair, a table, a pail, and a jug. The bed had iron clamps, but they were screwed to the wood, and it would have required a screwdriver to take them off. The table and chair had nothing. The pail had once possessed a handle, but that had been removed. Dante had but one resource, which was to break the jug, and with one of the sharp fragments attack the wall. He let the jug fall on the floor, and it broke in pieces. Dante concealed two or three of the sharpest fragments in his bed, leaving the rest on the floor. The breaking of his jug was too natural an accident to excite suspicion. Edmond had all the night to work in, but in the darkness he could not do much, and he soon felt that he was working against something very hard. He pushed back his bed and waited for day. All night he heard the subterranean workman who continued to mine his way. Day came, the jailer entered. Dante told him that the jug had fallen from his hands while he was drinking, and the jailer went grumblingly to fetch another one, without giving himself the trouble to remove the fragments of the broken one. He returned speedily, advised the prisoner to be more careful, 
and departed. Dante heard joyfully the key grate in the lock. He listened until the sound of steps died away, and then, hastily displacing his bed, saw by the faint light that penetrated into his cell that he had laboured uselessly the previous evening in attacking the stone instead of removing the plaster that surrounded it. The damp had rendered it friable, and Dante was able to break it off in small morsels, it is true, but at the end of a half an hour he had scraped off a handful. A mathematician might have calculated that in two years, supposing that the rock was not encountered, a passage twenty feet long and two feet broad might be formed. The prisoner reproached himself with not having thus employed the hours he had passed in vain hopes, prayer and despondency. During the six years that he had been imprisoned, what might he not have accomplished? In three days he had succeeded with the utmost precaution in removing the cement and exposing the stonework. The wall was built of rough stones, among which, to give strength to the structure, blocks of hewn stone were at intervals embedded. It was one of these he had uncovered, and which he must remove from its socket. Dante strove to do this with his nails, but they were too weak. The fragments of the jug broke, and after an hour of useless toil, he paused. Was he to be thus stopped at the beginning, and was he to wait inactive until his fellow workmen had completed his task? Suddenly, an idea occurred to him. He smiled, and the perspiration dried on his forehead. The jailer always brought Dante's soup in an iron saucepan. This saucepan contained soup for both prisoners, for Dante had noticed that it was either quite full or half empty, according as the turnkey gave it to him or to his companion first. The handle of this saucepan was of iron. Dante would have given ten years of his life in exchange for it. The jailer was accustomed to pour the contents of the saucepan into Dante's plate, and Dante, after eating his soup with a wooden spoon, washed the plate which thus served for every day. Now when evening came, Dante put his plate on the ground near the door. The jailer, as he entered, stepped on it and broke it. This time he could not blame Dante. He was wrong to leave it there, but the jailer was wrong not to have looked before him. The jailer therefore only grumbled when he looked about for something to pour the soup into. Dante's entire dinner service consisted of one plate. There was no alternative. Leave the saucepan, said Dante. You can take it away when you bring my breakfast. This advice was to the jailer's taste, as it spared him the necessity of making another trip. He left the saucepan. Dante was beside himself with joy. He rapidly devoured his food, and after waiting an hour lest the jailer should change his mind and return, he removed his bed, took the handle of the saucepan, inserted the point between the hewn stone and rough stones of the wall, and employed it as a lever. A slight oscillation showed Dante that all went well. At the end of an hour, the stone was extricated from the wall, leaving a cavity a foot and a half in diameter. Dante carefully collected the plaster, carried it into the corner of his cell, and covered it with earth. Then, wishing to make the best use of his time while he had the means of labour, he continued to work without ceasing. At the dawn of day he replaced the stone, pushed his bed against the wall, and lay down. The breakfast consisted of a piece of bread. The jailer entered and placed the bread on the table. 
Well, don't you intend to bring me another plate? said Dante. No, replied the turnkey. You destroy everything. First you break your jug, then you make me break your plate. If all the prisoners followed your example, the government would be ruined. I shall leave you the saucepan and pour your soup into that. So for the future, I hope you will not be so destructive. Dante raised his eyes to heaven and clasped his hands beneath the coverlet. He felt more gratitude for the possession of his piece of iron than he had ever felt for anything. He would noticed, however, that the prisoner on the other side had ceased to labour. No matter. This was a greater reason for proceeding. If his neighbour would not come to him, he would go to his neighbour. All day he toiled on untiringly, and by the evening he had succeeded in extracting ten handfuls of plaster and fragments of stone. When the hour for his jailer's visit arrived, Dante straightened the handle of the saucepan as well as he could, and placed it in its accustomed place. The turnkey poured his ration of soup into it, together with the fish, for thrice a week the prisoners were deprived of meat. This would have been a method of reckoning time had not Dante long ceased to do so. Having poured out the soup, the turnkey retired. Dante wished to ascertain whether his neighbour had really ceased to work. He listened. All was silent, as it had been for the last three days. Dante sighed. It was evident that his neighbour distrusted him. However, he toiled on all the night without being discouraged. But after two or three hours he encountered an obstacle. The iron made no impression, but met with a smooth surface. Dante touched it, and found that it was a beam. This beam crossed, or rather blocked up, the hole Dante had made. It was necessary, therefore, to dig above or under it. The unhappy young man had not thought of this. Oh, my God, my God, murmured he. I have so earnestly prayed to you that I hoped my prayers had been heard. After having deprived me of my liberty, after having deprived me of death, after having recalled me to existence, my God, have pity on me and do not let me die in despair. Who talks of God and despair at the same time? said a voice that seemed to come from beneath the earth and deadened by the distance sounded hollow and sepulchral in the young man's ears. Edmund's hair stood on end, and he rose to his knees. Ah, said he, I hear a human voice. Edmond had not heard anyone speak save his jailer for four or five years, and a jailer is no man to a prisoner. He is a living door, a barrier of flesh and blood adding strength to the restraints of oak and iron. In the name of heaven, cried Dante, speak again, though the sound of your voice terrifies me. Who are you? Who are you? said the voice. An unhappy prisoner, replied Dante, who made no hesitation in answering. Of what a country? A Frenchman. Your name? Edmond Dante. Your profession? A sailor. How long have you been here? Since the 28th of February, 1815. Your crime? I am innocent. But of what are you accused? Of having conspired to aid the Emperor's return. What? For the Emperor's return? The Emperor is no longer on the throne, then. He abdicated at Fontainebleau 
1814 and was sent to the island of Elba. But how long have you been here that you are ignorant of all this? Since 1811. Dante shuddered. This man had been four years longer than himself in prison. Do not dig any more, said the voice. Only tell me how high is, is your excavation? On a level with the floor. How is it concealed? Behind my bed. Has your bed been moved since you have been a prisoner? No. What does your chamber open on? A corridor. And the corridor? On a court. Alas! murmured the voice. Oh, what is the matter? cried Dante. I have made a mistake owing to an error in my plans. I took the wrong angle and have come out fifteen feet from where I intended. I took the wall you are mining for the outer wall of the fortress. But then you would be close to the sea. That is what I hoped. And supposing you had succeeded, I should have thrown myself into the sea, gained one of the islands near here, the Ile de Dôme or the Ile de Tiboulon, and then I should have been safe. Could you have swum so far? Heaven would have given me strength. But now all is lost. All? Yes. Stop up your excavation carefully. Do not work any more, and wait until you hear from me. Tell me at least who you are. I am... I am a number twenty-seven. You mistrust me, then, said Dante. Edmund fancied he heard a bitter laugh resounding from the depths. Oh, I am a Christian, cried Dante, guessing instinctively that this man meant to abandon him. I swear to you, by him who died for us, that naught shall induce me to breathe one syllable to my jailers. But I conjure you, do not abandon me. If you do, I swear to you, for I have got to the end of my strength, that I will dash my brains out against the wall, and you will have my death to reproach yourself with. How old are you? Your voice is that of a young man. I do not know my age, for I have not counted the years I have been here. All I do know is that I was just nineteen when I was arrested the 28th of February, 1815. Not quite twenty-six, murmured the voice. At that age, he cannot be a traitor. Oh, no, no, cried Dante. I swear to you, again, rather than betray you, I would allow myself to be hacked in pieces. You have done well to speak to me, and ask for my assistance. For I was about to form another plan, and leave you. But your age reassures me. I will not forget you. Wait. How long? I must calculate our chances. I will give you the signal. But you will not leave me. You will come to me, or you will let me come to you. We will escape, and if we cannot escape, we will talk. You of those whom you love, and I of those whom I love. You must love somebody. No, I am alone in the world. Then you will love me. If you are young, I will be your comrade. If you are old, I will be your son. I have a father who is seventy, if he yet lives. I only love him and a young girl called Mercedes. My father has not yet forgotten me. 
I am sure. But God alone knows if she loves me still. I shall love you as I loved my father. It is well, returned the voice. Tomorrow. These few words were uttered with an accent that left no doubt of his insincerity. Dante rose, dispersed the fragments with the same precaution as before, and pushed his bed back against the wall. He then gave himself up to his happiness. He would no longer be alone. He was, perhaps, about to regain his liberty. At the worst he would have a companion, and captivity that is shared is but half captivity. Plaints made in common are almost prayers, and prayers where two or three are gathered together invoke the mercy of heaven. All day Dante walked up and down his cell. He sat down occasionally on his bed, pressing his hand on his heart. At the slightest noise he bounded towards the door. Once or twice the thought crossed his mind that he might be separated from this unknown whom he loved already, and then his mind was made up. When the jailer moved his bed and stooped to examine the opening, he would kill him with his water jug. He would be condemned to die, but he was about to die of grief and despair when this miraculous noise recalled him to life. The jailer came in the evening. Dante was on his bed. It seemed to him that thus he better guarded the unfinished opening. Doubtless there was a strange expression in his eyes, for the jailer said, Come, are you going mad again? Dante did not answer. He feared that the emotion of his voice would betray him. The jailer went away, shaking his head. Night came. Dante hoped that his neighbour would profit by the silence to address him, but he was mistaken. The next morning, however, just as he removed his bed from the wall, he heard three knocks. He threw himself on his knees. Is it you? said he. I am here. Is your jailer gone? Yes, said Dante. You will not return until the evening, so that we have twelve hours before us. I can work then, said the voice. Oh, yes, yes, this is instant. I entreat you. In a moment, that part of the floor on which Dante was resting his hands as he knelt with his head in the opening suddenly gave way. He drew back smartly, while a mass of stones and earth disappeared in a hole that opened beneath the aperture he himself had formed. Then from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which it was impossible to measure, he saw appear first the head, then the shoulders, and lastly the body of a man who sprang lightly into his cell. End of chapter 15When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 16 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 A Learned Italian. 
Seizing in his arms the friend so long and ardently desired, Dante almost carried him towards the window in order to obtain a better view of his features by the aid of the imperfect light that struggled through the grating. He was a man of small stature, with hair blanched rather by suffering and sorrow than by age. He had a deep-set, penetrating eye almost buried beneath the thick grey eyebrow, and a long and still black beard reaching down to his breast. His thin face, deeply furrowed by care, and the bold outline of his strongly marked features, betokened a man more accustomed to exercise his mental faculties than his physical strength. Large drops of perspiration were now standing on his brow, while the garments that hung about him were so ragged that one could only guess at the pattern upon which they had originally been fashioned. The stranger might have numbered sixty or sixty-five years, but a certain briskness and appearance of vigour in his movements made it probable that he was aged more from captivity than the course of time. He received the enthusiastic greeting of his young acquaintance with evident pleasure, as though his chilled affections were rekindled and invigorated by his contact with one so warm and ardent. He thanked him with grateful cordiality for his kindly welcome, although he must at that moment have been suffering bitterly to find another dungeon, where he had fondly reckoned on discovering a means of regaining his liberty. "'Let us first see,' said he, "'whether it is possible to remove the traces of my entrance here. Our future tranquillity depends upon our jailers being entirely ignorant of it.' Advancing to the opening, he stooped and raised the stone easily, in spite of its weight. Then, fitting it into its place, he said, you removed this stone very carelessly, but I suppose you had no tools to aid you. Why? exclaimed Dante with astonishment. Do you possess any? I made myself some, and with the exception of a file, I have all that unnecessary, a chisel, pincers, and a lever. Oh, how I should like to see those products of your industry and patience. Well, in the first place, here is my chisel. So saying, he displayed a sharp, strong blade with a handle made of beechwood. And with what did you contrive to make that? inquired Dante. With one of the clamps of my bedstead, and this very tool has sufficed me to hollow out the road by which I came hither, a distance of about fifty feet. Fifty feet, responded Dante almost terrified. Do not speak so loud, young man. Don't speak so loud. It frequently occurs in a state prison like this that persons are stationed outside of the doors of the cells, purposely to overhear the conversation of the prisoners. But they believe I am shut up alone here. That makes no difference. And you say that you dug your way a distance of fifty feet to get here? I do. That is about the distance that separates your chamber from mine. Only, unfortunately, I did not curve right, for want of the necessary geometrical instruments to calculate my scale of proportion. Instead of taking an ellipsis of forty feet, I made it fifty. I expected, as I told you, to reach the outer wall, pierce through it, and to throw myself into the sea. I have, however, kept along the corridor in which your chamber opens, instead of going beneath it. 
my labour is all in vain, for I find that the corridor looks into a courtyard filled with soldiers. That's true, said Dante, but the corridor you speak of only bounds one side of my cell. There are three others. Do you know anything of their situation? This one is built against the solid rock, and it would take ten experienced miners, duly furnished with the requisite tools, as many years to perforate it. This adjoins the lower part of the governor's apartments, and where we to work our way through, we should only get into some lock-up cellars, where we must necessarily be recaptured. The fourth and last side of your cell faces on, faces on, stop a minute, now where does it face? The wall of which he spoke was the one in which was fixed the loophole by which light was admitted to the chamber. This loophole, which gradually diminished in size as it approached the outside, to an opening through which a child could not have passed, was, for better security, furnished with three iron bars, so as to quiet all apprehensions, even in the mind of the most suspicious jailer, as to the possibility of a prisoner's escape. As the stranger asked the question, he dragged the table beneath the window. "'Climb up,' said he to Dante. The young man obeyed, mounted on the table, and, divining the wishes of his companion, placed his back securely against the wall and held out both hands. The stranger, whom as yet Dante knew only by the number of his cell, sprang up with an agility by no means to be expected in a person of his years, and, light and steady on his feet, as a cat or a lizard, climbed from the table to the outstretched hands of Dante, and from them to his shoulders. Then, bending double, for the ceiling of the dungeon prevented him from holding himself erect, he managed to slip his head between the upper bars of the window, so as to be able to command a perfect view from top to bottom. An instant afterwards he hastily drew back his head, saying, I thought so, and sliding from the shoulders of Dante, as dexterously as he had descended, he nimbly le leapt from the table to the ground. "'What was it that you thought?' asked the young man anxiously, in his turn descending from the table. The elder prisoner pondered the matter. "'Yes,' said he at length, "'it is so. This side of your chamber looks out upon a kind of open gallery, where patrols are continually passing.' and sentries keep watch, day and night. Are you quite sure of that? Certain. I saw the soldier's shape, and the top of his musket. That made me draw mine my head so quickly, for I was fearful he might also see me. Well, inquired Dante, you perceive, then, the utter impossibility of escaping through your dungeon. Then, pursued the young man eagerly, then, answered the elder prisoner, the will of a god be done. And as the old man slowly pronounced those words, an air of profound resignation spread itself over his careworn countenance. Dante gazed on the man who could thus philosophically resign hopes so long and ardently nourished, with an astonishment mingled with admiration. Tell me, I entreat you, who and what you are, said he at length. Never have I met with so remarkable a person as yourself. Willingly, answered the stranger, 
If indeed you feel any curiosity respecting one, now alas powerless to aid you in any way, say not so. You can console and support me by the strength of your own powerful mind. Pray let me know who you really are. The stranger smiled a melancholy smile. Then listen, said he. I am the Abbe Faria, and have been imprisoned, as you know, in this Chateau d'If since the year 1811, previously to which I had been confined for three years in the fortress of Fenestrel. In the year 1811 I was transferred to Piedmont in France. It was at this period I learned that the destiny which seemed subservient to every wish formed by Napoleon had bestowed on him a son, named King of Rome even in his cradle. I was very far then from expecting the change you have just informed me of, namely that four years afterwards this colossus of power would be overthrown. Then who reigns in France at this moment? Napoleon II? No, Louis XVIII. The brother of Louis XVII? How inscrutable are the ways of providence! For what great and mysterious purpose has it pleased heaven to abase the man once so elevated and raise up him who was so abased? Dante's whole attention was riveted on a man who could thus forget his own misfortunes while occupying himself with the destinies of others. Yes, yes, continued he, it will be the same as it was in England, after Charles I, Cromwell, after Cromwell, Charles II, and then James II, and then some son-in-law or relation, some prince of Orange, a stadtholder who becomes a king, then new concessions to the people, then a constitution, then liberty. Ah, my friend, said the abbe, turning towards Dante and surveying him with the kindling gaze of a prophet, you are young, you will see all this come to pass. Probably, if ever I get out of prison. True, replied Faria, we are prisoners, but I forget this sometimes, and there are even moments when my mental vision transports me beyond these walls, and I fancy myself at liberty. But wherefore are you here? Because, in 1807, I dreamed of the very plan Napoleon tried to realize in 1811. Because, like Machiavelli, I desired to alter the political face of Italy, and instead of allowing it to be split up into a quantity of petty principalities, each held by some weak or tyrannical ruler, I sought to form one large, compact and powerful empire. And lastly, because I fancied I had found my Caesar Borgia in a crowned simpleton, who feigned to enter into my views only to betray me. It was the plan of Alexander VI and Clement VII. But it will never succeed now, for they attempted it fruitlessly, and Napoleon was unable to complete his work. Italy seems fated to misfortune. And the old man bowed his head. Dante could not understand a man risking his life for such matters. Napoleon certainly he knew something of, inasmuch as he had seen and spoken with him, but of Clement the Seventh and Alexander the Sixth he knew nothing. Are you not? he asked, 
The priest who here in Chateau d'If is generally thought to be uh, ill. Mad, you mean, don't you? I did not like to say so, answered Dante, smiling. Well, then, resumed Faria with a bitter smile, let me answer your question in full. By acknowledging that I am the poor mad prisoner of the Chateau d'If, for many years permitted to amuse the different visitors with what is said to be my insanity, and in all probability I should be promoted to the honour of making sport for the children, if such innocent beings could be found in an abode devoted like this to suffering and despair. Dante remained for a short time mute and motionless. At length he said, Then you abandon all hope of escape? I perceive its utter impossibility, and I consider it impious to attempt that which the Almighty evidently does not approve. Nay, but do not be discouraged. Would it not be expecting too much to hope to succeed at your first attempt? Why not try to find an opening in another direction from that which has so unfortunately failed? Alas, it shows how little notion you can have of all it has cost me to effect a purpose so unexpectedly frustrated that you talk of beginning over again. In the first place, I was four years making the tools I possess, and have been two years scraping and digging out earth hard as granite itself. Then what toil and fatigue has it not been to remove huge stones I should once have deemed impossible to loosen? Whole days have I passed in these titanic efforts, considering my labour well repaid, if by night-time I had contrived to carry away a square inch of this hard-bound cement, changed by ages into a substance unyielding as the stones themselves, then to conceal the mass of earth and rubbish I dug up, I was compelled to break through a staircase and throw the fruits of my labour into the hollow part of it. But the well is now so completely choked up that I scarcely think it would be possible to add another handful of dust without leading to discovery. Consider also that I fully believed I had accomplished the end aim of my undertaking, for which I had so exactly husbanded my strength as to make it just hold out to the termination of my enterprise. And now, at the moment when I reckoned upon success, my hopes and forever dashed from me, no, I repeat again that nothing will induce me to renew attempts evidently at variance with the Almighty's pleasure. Dante held down his head, that the other might not see how joy at the thought of having a companion outweighed the sympathy he felt for the failure of the Abbe's plans. The Abbe sank upon Edmond's bed, while Edmund himself remained standing. Escape had never once occurred to him. There are indeed some things which appear so impossible that the mind does not dwell on them for an instant. To undermine the ground for fifty feet, to devote three years to a labour which, if successful, would conduct you to a precipice overhanging the sea, to plunge into the waves from the height of fifty, sixty, perhaps a hundred feet, at the risk of being dashed to pieces against the rocks, should you have been fortunate enough to have escaped the fire of the sentinels, 
and even supposing all these perils passed, then to have to swim for your life a distance of at least three miles ere you could reach the shore were difficulties so startling and formidable that Dante had never even dreamed of such a scheme, resigning himself rather to death. But the sight of an old man clinging to life with so desperate a courage gave a fresh turn to his ideas and inspired him with new courage. Another, older and less strong than he, had attempted what he had not had sufficient resolution to undertake, and had failed only because of an error in calculation. This same person, with almost incredible patience and perseverance, had contrived to provide himself with tools requisite for so unparalleled an attempt. Another had done all this. Why, then, was it impossible to Dante? Faria had dug his way through fifty feet. Dante would dig a hundred. Faria, at the age of fifty, had devoted three years to the task. He, who was but half as old, would sacrifice six. Faria, a priest and savant, had not shrunk from the idea of risking his life by trying to swim a distance of three miles to one of the islands, Dôme, Ratonneau, or Lumère, should a hardy sailor, an experienced diver like himself, shrink from a similar task? Should he, who had so often, for mere amusement's sake, plunged to the bottom of the sea to fetch up the bright coral branch, hesitate to entertain the same project? He could do it in an hour. And how many times had he, for pure pastime, continued in the water for more than twice as long? At once, Dante resolved to follow the brave example of his energetic companion, and to remember that what has once been done may be done again. After continuing some time in profound meditation, the young man suddenly exclaimed, I have found what you are in search of. Faria started. Have you indeed? cried he, raising his head with quick anxiety. Pray, let me know what it is you have discovered. The corridor through which you have bored your way from the cell you occupy here, extends in the same direction as the outer gallery, does it not? It does, and is not above fifteen feet from it. About that. Well, then, I will tell you what we must do. We must pierce through the corridor by forming a side opening about the middle, as it were the top part of a cross. This time you will lay your plans more accurately. We shall get out into the gallery you have described, kill the sentinel who guards it, and make our escape. All we require to ensure success is courage, and that you possess, and strength which I am not deficient in. As for patience, you have abundantly proved yours. You shall now see me prove mine. One instant, my dear friend, replied the abbe, it is clear you do not understand the nature of the courage with which I am endowed, and what use I intend making of my strength. As for patience, I consider that I have abundantly exercised that in beginning every morning the task of the night before, and every night renewing the task of the day. But then a young man, and I pray of you to give me your full attention, then I thought I could not be doing anything displeasing to the Almighty in trying to set an innocent being at liberty, one who had committed no offence and merited not condemnation. And have your notions changed 
asked Dante with much surprise. Do you think yourself more guilty in making the attempt since you have encountered me? No, neither do I wish to incur guilt. Hitherto I have fancied myself merely waging war against circumstances, not men. I have thought it no sin to bore through a wall or destroy a staircase, but I cannot so easily persuade myself to pierce a heart or take away a life. A slight movement of surprise escaped Dante. Is it possible, said he, that where your liberty is at stake, you can allow any such scruple to deter you from obtaining it? Tell me, replied Faria, what has hindered you from knocking down your jailer with a piece of wood torn from your bedstead, dressing yourself in his clothes, and endeavouring to escape? Simply the fact that the idea never occurred to me, answered Dante. Because, said the old man, the natural repugnance to the commission of such a crime prevented you from thinking of it. And so it ever is, because in simple and allowable things our natural instincts keep us from deviating from the strict line of duty. The tiger, whose nature teaches him to delight in shedding blood, needs but the sense of smell to show him when his prey is within his reach, and by following this instinct he is enabled to measure the leap necessary to permit him to spring on his victim. But man, on the contrary, loathes the idea of blood. It is not alone that the laws of social life inspire him with a shrinking dread of taking life, his natural construction and physiological formation. Dante was confused and silent at this explanation of the thoughts which had unconsciously been working in his mind, or rather soul, for there are two distinct sorts of ideas, those that proceed from the head and those that emanate from the heart. Since am I imprisonment, said Faria, I have thought over all the most celebrated cases of escape on record. They have rarely been a successful. Those that have been crowned with full success have been long meditated upon and carefully arranged, such, for instance, as the escape of the Duke de Beaufort from the Chateau de Vincennes, that of the Abbe de Beauquois from Fort Levesque, of Latude from the Bastille. Then there are those for which chance sometimes affords opportunity, and those are the best of all. Let us therefore wait patiently for some favourable moment, and when it presents itself, profit by it. Ah, said Dante, you might well endure the tedious delay. You are constantly employed in the task you set yourself, and when weary with toil, you had your hopes to refresh and encourage you. I assure you, replied the old man, I did not turn to that source for recreation or support. What did you do then? I wrote or studied. Were you then permitted the use of pens, ink and paper? Oh, no, answered the abbe. I had none but what I made for myself. You made paper, pens and ink? Yes. Dante gazed with admiration, but he had some difficulty in believing. Faria saw this. When you pay me a visit in my cell, my young friend, said he, I will show you an entire work, 
the fruits of the thoughts and the reflections of my whole life. Many of them meditated over in the shades of the Colosseum at Rome, at the foot of St. Mark's Column at Venice, and on the borders of the Arno at Florence, little imagining at the time that they would be arranged in order within the walls of the Chateau d'If. The work I speak of is called A Treatise on the Possibility of a General Monarchy in Italy, and will make one large quarto volume. And on what have you written all this? On two of my shirts. I invented a preparation that makes linen as smooth and as easy to write on as parchment. You are then a chemist? Somewhat. I know Lavoisier and was the intimate friend of Cabani. But for such a work you must have needed books. Had you any? I had nearly five thousand volumes in my library at Rome, but after reading them over many times, I found out that with one hundred and fifty well-chosen books a man possesses, if not a complete summary of all human knowledge, at least all that a man need really know. I devoted three years of my life to reading and studying these one hundred and fifty volumes till I knew them nearly by heart, so that since I have been in prison a very slight effort of memory has enabled me to recall their contents as readily as though the pages were open before me. I could recite you the whole of Thucydides, Xenophon, Plutarch, Titus, Livius, Tacitus, Strada, Jonandes, Dante, Montaigne, Shakespeare, Spinoza, Machiavelli, and Bousset. I name only the most important. You are doubtless acquainted with a variety of languages, so as to have been able to read all these. Yes, I speak five of the modern tongues, that is to say, German, French, Italian, English, and Spanish. By the aid of ancient Greek, I learned modern Greek. I don't speak it so well as I could wish, but I am still trying to improve myself. Improve yourself, repeated Dante. Why, how can you manage to do so? Why, I made a vocabulary of the words I knew, turned, returned, and arranged them, so as to enable me to express my thoughts through their medium. I know nearly one thousand words, which is all that is absolutely necessary although I believe there are nearly one hundred thousand in the dictionaries. I cannot hope to be very fluent, but I certainly should have no difficulty in explaining my wants and wishes, and that would be quite as much as I should ever require. Stronger grew the wonder of Dante, who almost fancied it had to do with one gifted with supernatural powers, still hoping to find some imperfection which might bring him down to a level with human beings. He added, then, if you were not furnished with pens, how did you manage to write the word you speak of? I made some excellent ones, which would be universally preferred to all others if once known. You are aware what huge whitings are served us on Megre days. Well, I selected the cartilages of the heads of these fishes, and you can scarcely imagine the delight with which I welcomed the arrival of each Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday as affording me the means of increasing my stock of pens, for I will freely confess that my historical labours have been my greatest solace and relief. While retracing the past, I forgot the present, and traversing at will the path of history, 
I cease to remember that I am myself a prisoner. But the ink, said Dante, of what did you make your ink? There was formerly a fireplace in my dungeon, replied Faria, but it was closed up long ere I became an occupant of this prison. Still, it must have been many years in use, for it was thickly covered with a coating of soot. This soot I dissolved in a portion of the wine brought to me every Sunday, and I assure you a better ink cannot be desired, for very important notes for which closer attention is required, I prayed to one of my fingers, and wrote with my own blood. And when? asked Dante. May I see all this? Whenever you please, replied the abbe. Oh, then let it meet directly, exclaimed the young man. Follow me, then, said the abbe, as he re-entered the subterranean passage, in which he soon disappeared, followed by Dante. End of chapter 16「Chapter 17. The Abbe's Chamber After having passed with tolerable ease through the subterranean passage, which, however, did not admit of their holding themselves erect, the two friends reached the further end of the corridor, into which the Abbe's cell opened. From that point, the passage became much narrower, and barely permitted one to creep through on hands and knees. The floor of the abbe's cell was paved, and it had been by raising one of the stones in the most obscure corner that Faria had to be enabled to commence the laborious task of which Dante had witnessed the completion. As he entered the chamber of his friend, Dante cast around one eager and searching glance in quest of the expected marvels but nothing more than common met his view. "'It is well,' said the abbé. "'We have some hours before us. "'It is now just a quarter past twelve o'clock.' Instinctively, Dante turned round to observe by what watch or clock the abbé had been able so accurately to specify the hour. "'Look at this ray of light which enters by my window,' said the abbé. "'And then observe the lines are traced on the wall.' Well, by means of these lines, which are in accordance with the double motion of the earth, and the ellipse it describes around the sun, I am enabled to ascertain the precise hour with more minuteness than if I possessed a watch, for that might be broken or deranged in its movements, while the sun and the earth never vary in their appointed paths. This last explanation was wholly lost upon Dante, who had always imagined from seeing the sun rise from behind the mountains and set in the Mediterranean that it moved, and not the earth. A double movement of the globe he inhabited, and of which he could feel nothing, appeared to him perfectly impossible. Each word that fell from his companion's lips seemed fraught with the mysteries of science, as worthy of digging out as of the gold and diamonds in the mines of Guzerat and Golconda, which he could just recollect having visited during a voyage made in his earliest youth. Come said he to the abbe. I am anxious to see your treasures. The abbe smiled, and, proceeding to the disused fireplace, raised by the help of his chisel a long stone, which had doubtless been the hearth 
beneath which was a cavity of considerable depth, serving as a safe depository of the articles mentioned to Dante. "'What do you wish to see first? asked the abbé. "'Oh, your great work on the monarchy of Italy.' Faria then drew forth from his hiding-place three or four rolls of linen, laid one over the other like folds of papyrus. These rolls consisted of slips of cloth about four inches wide and eighteen long. They were all carefully numbered and closely covered with writing, so legible that Dante could easily read it, as well as make out the sense, it being in, in Italian, a language he, as a Provençal, perfectly understood. There, said he, there is the work complete. I wrote the word finis at the end of the sixty-eighth strip about a week ago. I have torn up two of my shirts, and as many handkerchiefs as I was master of, to complete the precious pages. Should I ever get out of prison and find in all Italy a printer courageous enough to publish what I have composed, my literary reputation is forever secured. I see, answered Dante. Now let me behold the curious pens with which you have written your work. Look, said Faria, showing to the young man a slender stick about six inches long, and much resembling the size of the handle of a fine painting brush, to the end of which was tied, by a piece of thread, one of those cartilages of which the abbé had before spoken to Dante. It was pointed, and divided at the nib like an ordinary pen. Dante examined it with intense admiration, then looked around to see the instrument with which it had been shaped so correctly into form. Ah, yes, said Faria. The penknife, that's my masterpiece. I made it as well, this larger knife, out of an old iron candlestick. The penknife was sharp and keen as a razor. As for the other knife, it would serve a double purpose, and with it one cut and thrust. Dante examined the various articles shown to him with the same attention that he had bestowed on the curiosities and strange tools exhibited in the shops at Marseille, as the works of the savages in the South Seas, from whence they had been brought by the different trading vessels. "'As for the ink,' said Faria, "'I told you I managed to obtain that, and I only just made it from time to time as I require it.' "'One thing still puzzles me,' observed Dante, "'and that is how you managed to do all this by daylight.' "'I worked at night also,' replied Faria. "'Night? Why?' For heaven's sake, are your eyes like cats, that you can see to work in the dark? Indeed they are not, but God has supplied a man with the intelligence that enables him to overcome the limitations of natural conditions. I furnish myself with a light. You did? Pray, tell me how. I separated the fat from the meat served to me, melted it, and so made oil. Here is my lamp. So saying, the abbé exhibited a sort of torch, very similar to those used in public illuminations. But a light. Here are two flints and a piece of burnt linen. And matches? I pretended that I had a disorder of the skin, and asked for a little sulphur, which was readily supplied. Dante laid the different things he had been looking at on the table, and stood with his head drooping on his breast, as though overwhelmed by the perseverance and strength of Faria's mind. "'You have not seen all yet,' continued Faria. 
for I do not think it wise to trust all my treasures in the same hiding place. Let us shut this one up. They put the stone back in its place. The abbe sprinkled a little dust over it to conceal the traces of its having been removed, rubbed his foot well on it to make it assume the same appearance as the other, and then, going towards his bed, he removed it from the spot it stood in. Behind the head of the bed, and concealed by a stone fitting in so closely as to defy all suspicion, was a hollow space, and in this space a ladder of cords between twenty-five and thirty-eight feet in length. Dante closely and eagerly examined it. He found it firm, solid, and compact enough to bear any weight. Who supplied you with the materials for making this wonderful work? I tore up several of my shirts and ripped out the seams in the seats of my bed during my three years' imprisonment at Fenestrelle, and when I was removed to the Chateau d'If, I managed to bring the ravelings with me so that I have been able to finish my work here. And was it not discovered that your sheets were unhemmed? Oh, no, for when I had taken out the thread I required, I hemmed the edges over again. With what? With this needle, said the abbe. As opening his ragged vestments, he showed Dante a long, sharp fishbone with a small perforated eye for the thread, a small portion of which still remained in it. I once thought, continued Faria, of removing these iron bars and letting myself down from the window, which, as you see, is somewhat wider than yours, although I should have enlarged it still more, preparatory to my flight. However, I discovered that I should merely have dropped into a sort of inner court, and I therefore renounced the project altogether as too full of risk and danger. Nevertheless, I carefully preserved my ladder against one of those unforeseen opportunities of which I spoke just now and which sudden chance frequently brings about. While affecting to be deeply engaged in examining the ladder, the mind of Dante was, in fact, busily occupied by the idea that a person so intelligent, ingenious, and clear-sighted as the Abbe might probably be able to solve the dark mystery of his own misfortunes, where he himself could see nothing. "'What are you thinking of?' asked the Abbe smilingly, imputing the deep abstraction in which his visitor was plunged to the excess of his awe and wonder. "'I was reflecting in the first place,' replied Dante, "'upon the enormous degree of intelligence and ability you must have employed to reach the high perfection to which you have attained. What would you not have accomplished if you had been free?' "'Possibly nothing at all. The overflow of my brain would probably, in a state of freedom, have evaporated in a thousand follies. Misfortune is needed to bring to light the treasures of the human intellect. Compression is needed to explode a gunpowder. Captivity has brought my mental faculties to a focus, and you are well aware that from the collision of clouds electricity is produced, from electricity lightning, from lightning illumination. No, replied Dante, I know nothing. Some of your words are to me quite empty of meaning. You must be blessed indeed to possess the knowledge you have. The abbe smiled. Well, said he, but you had another subject for your thoughts. Did you not say so just now? I did. You have told me as yet but one of them. Let me hear the other. 
it was this, that while you had related to me all the particulars of your past life, you were perfectly unacquainted with mine. Your life, my younger friend, has not been of sufficient length to admit of your having passed through any very important events. It has been long enough to inflict on me a great and undeserved misfortune. I would fain fix the source of it on man that I may no longer vent reproaches upon heaven. Then you profess ignorance of the crime with which you are charged. I do indeed, and this I swear by the two beings most dear to me upon earth, my father and Mercedes. Come, said the abbe, closing his hiding place and pushing the bed back to its original situation. Let me hear your story. Dante obeyed and commenced what he called his history, but which consisted only of the account of a voyage to India and two or three voyages to the Levant, until he arrived at the recital of his last cruise with the death of Captain Leclerc and the receipt of a packet to be delivered by himself to the Grand Marshal. His interview with that personage and his receiving, in place of the packet brought, a letter addressed to a Monsieur Noirtier, his arrival at Marseille and interview with his father, his affection for Mercedes and their nuptial feast, his arrest and subsequent examination, his temporary detention at the Palais de Justice, and his final imprisonment in the Chateau d'If. From this point everything was a blank to Dante. He knew nothing more, not even the length of time he had been imprisoned. His recital finished, the abbe reflected long and earnestly. There is, said he at the end of his meditations, a clever maxim, which bears upon what I was saying to you some little while ago, and that is that unless wicked ideas take root in a naturally depraved mind, human nature in a right and wholesome state revolts at crime. Still, from an artificial civilization have originated once vices and false tastes, which occasionally become so powerful as to stifle within us all good feelings and ultimately to lead us into guilt and wickedness. From this view of things, then comes the axiom that if you visit to discover the author of any bad action, seek first to discover the person to whom the perpetration of that bad action could be in any way advantageous. And now to apply it in your case, to whom could your disappearance have been serviceable? To no one, by heaven. I was very insignificant person. Do not speak thus, for your reply evinces neither logic nor philosophy. Everything is relative, my dear young friend, from the king who stands in the way of his successor to the employee who keeps his rival out of a place. Now, in the event of the king's death, his successor inherits a crown. When the employee dies, the supernumerary steps into his shoes and receives his salary of twelve thousand livres. Well, uh, these twelve thousand livres are his civil list, and are as essential to him as the twelve millions of a king. Every one, from the highest to the lowest degree, has his place on the social ladder, and is beset by stormy passions and conflicting interests, as in Descartes' theory of pressure and impulsion. But these forces increase as we go higher, so that we have a spiral which, in defiance of reason, rests upon the apex and not on the base. Now let us return to your particular world. 
You say you were on the point of being made a captain of the pharaoh. Yes. And about to become the husband of a young and lovely girl. Yes. Now, could anyone have had any interest in preventing the accomplishment of these two things? But let us first settle the question as to its being the interest of anyone to hinder you from being captain of the pharaoh. What say you? I cannot believe such was the case. I was generally liked on board, and that the sailors possessed the right of selecting a captain themselves, I feel convinced their choice would have fallen on me. There was only one person among the crew who had any feeling of ill-will towards me. I had quarrelled with him some time previously, and had even challenged him to fight me, but he refused. Now we are getting on. And what was this man's name? Donglard. What rank did he hold on board? He was supercargo. And had you been a captain, should you have retained him in his employment? Not if the choice had remained with me, for I had frequently observed inaccuracies in his accounts. Good again. Now then tell me, was any person present during your last conversation with Captain Leclerc? No, we were quite alone. Could your conversation have been overheard by anyone? It might, for the cabin door was open. And stay, now, I recollect. Donglar himself passed by just as Captain Leclerc was giving me the packet for the Grand Marshal. That's a better, cried the abbe. Now we are on the right ascent. Did you take anybody with you when you put into the port of Elba? Nobody. Somebody there received your packet, and gave you a letter in place of it, I think. Yes, the Grand Marshal did. And what did you do with that letter? Put it into my portfolio. You had your portfolio with you, then? Now, how could a sailor find room in his pocket for a portfolio large enough to contain an official letter? You are right. It was left on board. Then it was not until your return to the ship that you put the letter in the portfolio. No. And what did you do with this same letter while returning from the port of Arayo to the vessel? I carried it in my hand. So that when you went on board the pharaoh, everybody could see that you held a letter in your hand. Yes. Donglar as well as the rest. Donglar as well as others. Now listen to me, and try to recall every circumstance attending your arrest. Do you recollect the words in which the information against you was formulated? Oh yes, I read it over three times, and the words sank deeply into my memory. Repeat it to me. Dante paused a moment, then said, This is it, word for word. The king's attorney is informed by a friend to the throne and religion that one Edmond Dante, mate on board the pharaoh, this day arrived from Smyrna, after having touched at Naples and Portoferraio, has been entrusted by Murat with a packet for the usurper, again by the usurper, with a letter for the Bonapartist club in Paris. This proof of his guilt may be procured by his immediate arrest as the letter will be found either about his person, at his father's residence, or in his cabin on board the pharaoh. 
The abbe shrugged his shoulders. The thing is clear as day, said he, and you must have had a very confiding nature, as well as a good heart, not to have suspected the origin of the whole affair. Do you really think so? Ah, that would indeed be infamous. How did Danglars usually write? In a handsome running hand. And how was the anonymous letter written? Backhanded. Again, the abbe smiled. Disguised? It was very boldly written, if disguised. Stop a bit, said the abbe, taking up what he called his pen, and after dipping it into the ink, he wrote on a piece of prepared linen with his left hand the first two or three words of the accusation. Dante drew back and gazed on the abbe with sensation almost amounting to terror. How very astonishing, cried he at length. Why, your writing exactly resembles that of the accusation. Simply because of that accusation had been written with the left hand, and I have noticed that... What? That while the writing of different persons done with the right hand varies, that performed with the left hand is invariably uniform. You have evidently seen and observed everything. Let us proceed. Oh, yes, yes. Now, as regards the second question, I am listening. Was there any person whose interest it was to prevent your marriage with Mercedes? Yes, a young man who loved her. And his name was? Fernand. This is a Spanish name, I think. He was a Catalan. You imagine him capable of writing the letter? Oh, no. You would more likely have got rid of me by sticking a knife into me. That is in a strict accordance with the Spanish character. An assassination they will unhesitatingly commit, but an act of cowardice, never. Besides, said Dante, the various circumstances mentioned in the letter were wholly unknown to him. You had never spoken of them yourself to anyone? To no one. Not even to your mistress? No, not even to my betrothed. Then it is a donglar. I feel quite sure of it now. Wait a little. Pray, was Danglars acquainted with Fernand? No. Yes, he was. Now I recollect. What? Do I've seen them both sitting at the table, together under an arbor, at Père Pomphile's, the evening before the day fixed for my wedding? They were in earnest conversation. Danglars was joking in a friendly way, but Fernand looked pale and agitated. Were they alone? There was a third person with them, whom I knew perfectly well, and who had in all probability made their acquaintance. He was a tailor named Caderousse, but he was very drunk. Stay, stay, how strange, that it should not have occurred to me before. Now I remember quite well that on the table round which they were sitting were pens, ink, and paper. Oh, the heartless, treacherous scoundrels! exclaimed Dante, pressing his hand to his throbbing brows. Is there anything else I can assist you in discovering, besides the villainy of your friends? inquired the abbe with a laugh. Yes, yes, replied Dante eagerly. I would beg of you, who see so completely to the depths of things, 
and to whom the greatest mystery seems but an easy riddle, to explain to me how it was that I underwent no second examination, was never brought to trial, and, above all, was condemned without ever having had sentence passed on me. That is altogether a different and more serious matter, responded the abbe. The ways of justice are frequently too dark and mysterious to be easily penetrated. All we have hitherto done in the matter has been child's play. If you wish me to enter upon the more difficult part of the business, you must assist me by the most minute information on every point. Pray ask me whatever question you please, for in good truth you see more clearly into my life than I do myself. In the first place, then who examined you, the king's attorney, his deputy, or a magistrate? The deputy. Was he young or old? About six or seven and twenty years of age, I should say. So, answered the abbe, old enough to be ambitious, but too young to be corrupt. And how did he treat you? With more of mildness than severity. Did you tell him your whole story? I did. And did his conduct change at all in the course of your examination? He did appear much disturbed when he read the letter that had brought me into this scrape. He seemed quite overcome by my misfortune. By your misfortune? Yes. Then you feel quite sure that it was the misfortune he deplored. He gave me one great proof of his sympathy at any rate. And that? He burnt the sole evidence that could at all have criminated me. What, the accusation? No, the letter. Are you sure? I saw it done. That alters the case. This man might, after all, be a great scoundrel than you have thought possible. Upon my word, said Dante, you make me shudder. Is the world filled with tigers and crocodiles? Yes, and remember that two-legged tigers and crocodiles are more dangerous than the others. Never mind. Let us go on. With all of my heart, you tell me he burned the letter. He did, saying at the same time, You see, I thus destroy the only proof existing against you. This action is somewhat too sublime to be natural. You think so? I am sure of it. To whom was this letter addressed? To Monsieur Noirtier, numero 13, Coqueron, Paris. Now can you conceive of any interest that your heroic deputy could possibly have had in the destruction of that letter? Why, it is not altogether impossible. He might have had, for he made me promise several times never to speak of that letter to anyone, assuring me he so advised me for my own interest. And more than this, he insisted on my taking a solemn oath never to utter the name mentioned in the address. Noirtier, repeated the abbe. Noirtier. I knew a person of that name at the court of the Queen of Etteria. A Noirtier, who had been a Girondin during the revolution. What was your deputy called? De Villefort. The abbe burst into a fit of laughter, while Dante gazed on him in utter astonishment. What ails you? said he at length. 
Do you see that ray of sunlight? I do. Well, the whole thing is more clear to me than that sunbeam is to you. Poor fellow, poor young man. And you tell me this magistrate expressed great sympathy and commiseration for you. He did. And the worthy man destroyed your compromising letter. Yes. And then made you swear never to utter the name of Noirtier. Yes. Why, you poor short-sighted simpleton, can you not guess who this Noirtier was, whose very name he was so careful to keep concealed? Noirtier was his father. Had a thunderbolt fallen at the feet of Dante, or hell opened its yawning gulf before him, he could not have been more completely transfixed with horror than he was at the sound of these unexpected words. Starting up, he clasped his hands around his head as though to prevent his very brain from bursting, and exclaimed, His father? His father? Yes, his father, replied the abbe. His right name was Noirtier de Villefort. At this instant, a bright light shot through the mind of Dante, and cleared up all that had been dark and obscure before. The change that had come over Villefort during the examination, the destruction of the letter, the exacted promise, the almost supplicating tones of the magistrate who seemed rather to implore mercy than to pronounce punishment, all returned with a stunning force to his memory. He cried out and staggered against the wall like a drunken man. Then he hurried to the opening that led from the abbe's cell to his own and said, I must be alone to think over all this. When he regained his dungeon, he threw himself on his bed, where the turnkey found him in the evening visit, sitting with fixed gaze and contracted features, dumb and motionless as a statue. During these hours of profound meditation, which to him had seemed only minutes, he had formed a fearful resolution, and bound himself to its fulfilment by a solemn oath. Dante was at length roused from his reverie by the voice of Faria, who, having also been visited by his jailer, had come to invite his fellow sufferer to share his supper. The reputation of being out of his mind, though harmlessly and even amusingly so, had procured for the abbe unusual privileges. He was supplied with bread of a finer, whiter quality than the usual prison fare, and even regaled each Sunday with a small quantity of wine. Now this was a Sunday, and the abbe had come to ask his young companion to share the luxuries with him. Dante followed. His features were no longer contracted, and now wore their usual expression. But there was that in his whole appearance that bespoke one who had come to a fixed and desperate resolve. Faria bent on him his penetrating eye. I regret now, said he, having helped you in your late inquiries, or having given you the information I did. Why so? inquired Dante. Because it has instilled a new passion in your heart, that of vengeance. Dante smiled. Let us talk of something else, said he. Again, the abbe looked at him, then mournfully shook his head, but in accordance with Dante's request, he began to speak of other matters. The elder prisoner was one of those persons whose conversation, like that of all who had experienced many trials, contained many useful and important hints, 
as well as sound information. But it was never egotistical, for that unfortunate man never alluded to his own sorrows. Dante listened with admiring attention to all he said. Some of his remarks corresponded with what he already knew, or applied to the sort of knowledge his nautical life had enabled him to acquire. A part of the good abbe's words, however, were wholly incomprehensible to him, but like the aurora which guides the navigator in northern latitudes, opened new vistas to the inquiring mind of the listener, and gave fantastic glimpses of new horizons, enabling him justly to estimate the delight an intellectual mind would have in following one so richly gifted as Faria along the heights of truth, where he was so much at home. You must teach me a small part of what you know, said Dante, if only to prevent your growing weary of me. I can well believe that so learned a person as yourself would prefer absolute solitude to being tormented with the company of one as ignorant and uninformed as myself. If you will only agree to my request, I promise you never to mention another word about escaping. The abbe smiled. Alas, my boy, said he, Human knowledge is confined within very narrow limits, and when I have taught you mathematics, physics, history, and the three or four modern languages with which I am acquainted, you will know as much as I do myself. Now it will scarcely require two years for me to communicate to you the stock of learning I possess. Two years? exclaimed Dante. Do you really believe I can acquire all these things in so short a time? Not their application, certainly, but their principles you may. To learn is not to know. There are the learners and the learned. Memory makes the one, philosophy the other. But cannot one learn philosophy? Philosophy cannot be a taught. It is the application of the sciences to truth. It is like the golden cloud in which the Messiah went up into heaven. Well then, said Dante, what shall you teach me first? I am in a hurry to begin. I want to learn. Everything, said the abbe. And that very evening, the prisoners sketched a plan of education to be entered upon the following day. Dante possessed a prodigious memory, combined with an astonishing quickness and readiness of conception. The mathematical turn of his mind rendered him apt at all kinds of calculation, while his naturally poetical feelings threw a light and pleasing veil over the dry reality of arithmetical computation, or the rigid severity of ge geometry. He already knew Italian, and had also picked up a little of the Romaic dialect during voyages to the east, and by the aid of these two languages he easily comprehended the construction of all the others, so that at the end of six months he began to sp speak Spanish, English, and German, in strict accordance with the promise made to the abbe, Dante spoke no more of escape. Perhaps the delight his studies afforded him left no room for such thoughts. Perhaps the recollection that he had pledged his word, on which his sense of honour was keen, kept him from referring in any way to the possibilities of flight. Days, even months, passed by unheeded in one rapid and instructive course. At the end of a year, Dante was a new man. Dante observed, however, that Faria, in spite of the relief his society afforded, daily grew sadder. 
one thought seemed incessantly to harass and distract his mind. Sometimes he would fall into long reverie, sigh heavily and involuntarily, then suddenly rise, and with folded arms begin pacing the confined space of his dungeon. One day he stopped all at once and exclaimed, Ah, if there were no sentinel, there shall not be one a minute longer than you please, said Dante, who had followed the working of his thoughts as accurately as though his brain were enclosed in crystal, so clear as to display its minutest operations. I have already told you, answered the abbe, that I loathe the idea of shedding blood. And yet the murder, if you choose to call it so, would be simply a measure of self-preservation. No matter. I could never agree to it. Still, you have thought of it. Incessantly, alas, cried the abbe. And you have discovered a means of regaining our freedom, have you not? asked Dante eagerly. I have, if it were only possible, to place a deaf and blind sentinel in the gallery beyond us. He shall be both blind and deaf, replied the young man, with an air of determination that made his companion shudder. No, no, cried the abbe. Impossible, Dante endeavoured to renew the subject. The abbe shook his head in token of disapproval and refused to make any further response. Three months passed away. Are you strong? the abbe asked one day of Dante. The young man in reply took up the chisel, bent it into the form of a horseshoe, and then as readily straightened it. And you will engage not to do any harm to the sentry, except as a last resort? I promise, on my honour. Then, said the abbe, we may hope to put our design into execution. And how long shall we be in accomplishing the unnecessary work? At least a year. And shall we begin at once? At once. We have lost a year to no purpose, cried Dante. Do you consider the last twelve months to have been wasted? asked the abbe. Forgive me, cried Edmund, blushing deeply. Tut, tut, answered the abbe. Man is but a man after all, and you are about the best specimen of the genus I have ever known. Come, let me show you my plan. The abbe then showed Dante the sketch he had made for their escape. It consisted of a plan of his own cell and that of Dante with the passage which united them. In this passage he proposed to drive a level as they do in mines. This level would bring the two prisoners immediately beneath the gallery where the sentry kept watch. Once there a large excavation would be made and one of the flagstones with which the gallery was paved to be so completely loosened that at the desired moment it would give way beneath the feet of the soldier who, stunned by his fall, would be immediately bound and gagged by Dante before he had power to offer any resistance. The prisoners were then to make their way through one of the gallery windows and to let themselves down from the outer walls by means of the abbe's ladder of cords. Dante's eyes sparkled with joy and he rubbed his hands with delight at the idea of a plan so simple yet apparently so certain to succeed. That very day the miners began their labours with a vigour and alacrity proportional to their long rest from fatigue and their hopes of ultimate success. 
Nothing interrupted the progress of the work, except the necessity that each was under of returning to his cell in anticipation of the turnkey's visits. They had learned to distinguish the almost imperceptible sound of his footsteps as he descended towards their dungeons, and happily never failed of being prepared for his coming. The fresh earth excavated during their present work, and which would have entirely blocked up the old passage, was thrown by degrees and with the utmost precaution out of the window in either Faria's or Dante's cell, the rubbish being first pulverised so finely that the night wind carried it far away without permitting the smallest trace to remain. More than a year had been consumed in this undertaking, the only tools for which had been a chisel, a knife and a wooden lever. Faria still continued to instruct Dante by conversing with him, sometimes in one language, sometimes in another, at others relating to him the history of nations and great men who from time to time have risen to fame and trodden the path of glory. The abbe was a man of the world and had, moreover, mixed in the first society of the day. He wore an air of melancholy dignity which Dante, thanks to the imitative powers bestowed on him by nature, easily acquired, as well as that outward polish and politeness he had before been wanting in, and which is seldom possessed except by those who have been placed in constant intercourse with persons of high birth and breeding. At the end of fifteen months the level was finished, and the excavation completed beneath the gallery, and the two workmen could distinctly hear the measured tread of the sentinel as he paced to and fro over their heads. Compelled as they were to await a night sufficiently dark to favour their flight, they were obliged to defer their final attempt till that auspicious moment should arrive. Their greatest dread now was lest the stone through which the sentry was doomed to fall should give way before its right time. And this they had in some measure provided against by propping it up with a small beam which they had discovered in the walls through which they had worked their way. Dante was occupied in arranging this piece of wood when he heard Faria, who had remained in Edmond's cell for the purpose of cutting a peg to secure their rope ladder, call to him in a tone indicative of great suffering. Dante hastened to his dungeon, where he found him standing in the middle of the room, pale as death, his forehead streaming with perspiration, and his hands clinched tightly together. "'Gracious heavens!' exclaimed Dante. "'What is the matter?' What has happened? Quick, quick, returned the abbe. Listen to what I have to say. Dante looked in fear and wonder at the livid countenance of Faria, whose eyes, already dull and sunken, were surrounded by purple circles, while his lips were white as those of a corpse, and his very hair seemed to stand on end. Tell me, I beseech you, what ails you? cried Dante, letting his chisel fall to the floor. "'Alas!' faltered the abbey. "'All is over with me. "'I am seized with a terrible, perhaps mortal illness. "'I can feel that the paroxysm is fast approaching. "'I had a similar attack the year previous to my imprisonment. "'This malady admits but of one remedy. "'I will tell you what it is. "'Go into my cell as quickly as you can.' "'Draw out one of the feet that support the bed. "'You will find it has been hollowed out "'for the purpose of containing a small file. "'You will see there are filled with a red-looking fluid. 
bring it to me. Or rather, no, no, I may be found here. Therefore, help me back to my room while I have the strength to drag myself along. Who knows what may happen, or how long the attack may last. In spite of the magnitude of the misfortune which thus suddenly frustrated his hopes, Dante did not lose his presence of mind, but descended into the passage, dragging his unfortunate companion with him. Then, half carrying, half supporting him, he managed to reach the abbe's chamber, when he immediately laid the sufferer on his bed. Thanks, said the poor abbe, shivering as though his veins were filled with ice. I am about to be seized with a fit of catalepsy. And when it comes to its height, I shall probably lie still and motionless as though dead, uttering neither sigh nor groan. On the other hand, the symptoms may be much more violent and cause me to fall into fearful convulsions, foam at the mouth and cry out loudly. Take care my cries are not heard, for if they are, it is more than probable. I shall be removed to another part of the prison, and we be separated for ever. When I become quite motionless, cold, and rigid as a corpse, then, and not before, be careful about this. Force open my teeth with a knife. Pour from eight to ten drops of the liquor contained in the phial down my throat, and I may perhaps revive. Perhaps, exclaimed Dante in grief-stricken tones. Help! Help! cried the abbe. I, I, die! So sudden and violent was the fit that the unfortunate prisoner was unable to complete the sentence. A violent convulsion shook his whole frame. His eyes started from their sockets. His mouth was drawn on one side. His cheeks became purple. He struggled, foamed, dashed himself about and uttered the most dreadful cries, which, however, Dante prevented from being heard by covering his head with the blanket. The fit lasted two hours. Then, more helpless than an infant, and colder and paler than marble, more crushed and broken than a reed trampled underfoot, he fell back, doubled up in one last convulsion, and became as rigid as a corpse. Edmond waited till life seemed extinct in the body of his friend. Then, taking up the knife, he with difficulty forced open the closely fixed jaws, carefully administered the appointed number of drops, and anxiously awaited the result. An hour passed away, and the old man gave no sign of returning animation. Dante began to fear he had delayed too long ere he had administered the remedy, and thrusting his hands into his hair, continued gazing on the lifeless features of his friend. At length, a slight colour, or tinged the livid cheeks, consciousness returned to the dull, open eyeballs, a faint sigh issued from the lips, and the sufferer made a feeble effort to move. He is saved! He is saved! cried Dante in a paroxysm of delight. The sick man was not yet able to speak, but he pointed with evident anxiety towards the door. Dante listened, and plainly distinguished the approaching steps of the jailer, it was therefore near seven o'clock, but Edmond's anxiety had put all thoughts of time out of his head. The young man sprang to the entrance, darted through it, carefully drawing the stone over the opening, and hurried to his cell. He had scarcely done so before the door opened, and the jailer saw the prisoner seated as usual on the side of his bed. Almost before the key had turned in the lock, and before the departing steps of the jailer had died away in the long corridor, he had to traverse 
Dante, whose restless anxiety concerning his friend left him no desire to touch the food brought to him, hurried back to the abbe's chamber, and raising the stone by pressing his head against it, was soon beside the sick man's couch. Faria had now fully regained his consciousness, but he still lay helpless and exhausted. "'I did not expect to see you again,' said he feebly to Dante. "'And why not?' asked the young man. Did you fancy yourself dying? No, I had no such idea. But, knowing that all was ready for flight, I thought you might have made your escape. The deep glow of indignation suffused the cheeks of Dante. Without you? Did you really think me capable of that? At least, said the abbe, I now see how wrong such an opinion would have been. Alas! Alas, I am fearfully exhausted and debilitated by this attack. Be of good cheer, replied Dante. Your strength will return. And as he spoke, he seated himself near the bed beside Faria and took his hands. The abbe shook his head. The last attack I had, said he, lasted but half an hour, and after it I was hungry and got up without help. Now I can move neither my right arm nor leg, and my head seems uncomfortable, which shows that there has been a suffusion of blood on the brain. The third attack will either carry me off or leave me paralyzed for life. No, no, cried Dante, you are mistaken. You will not die, and your third attack, if indeed you should have another, We'll find you at liberty. We shall save you another time, as we have done this, only with a better chance of success, because we shall be able to command every requisite assistance. My good Edmond, answered the abbe, be not deceived. The attack which has just passed away condemns me forever to the walls of a prison. None can fly from a dungeon who cannot walk. Well, we will wait a week, a month, two months, if need be, and meanwhile your strength will return. Everything is in readiness for our flight, and we can select any time we choose. As soon as you feel able to swim, we will go. I shall never swim again, replied Faria. This arm is paralyzed, not for a time, but forever. Lift it and judge if I am mistaken. The young man raised the arm which fell back by its own weight, perfectly inanimate and helpless. A sigh escaped him. You are convinced now, Edmond, are you not? asked the abbe. Depend upon it. I know what I say. Since the first attack I experienced of this malady, I have continually reflected on it. Indeed, I expected it, for it is a family inheritance. Both my father and grandfather died of it in a third attack. The physician, who prepared me for the remedy I have twice successfully taken, was no other than the celebrated Cabani, and he predicted a similar end for me. The physician may be mistaken, exclaimed Dante, and as for your poor arm, what difference will that make? I can take you on my shoulders and swim for both of us. My son said the abbe, 
You, who are a sailor and a swimmer, must know as well as I do that a man so loaded would sink before he had done fifty strokes. Cease, then, to allow yourself to be duped by feign hopes that even your own excellent heart refuses to believe in. Here I shall remain till the hour of my deliverance arrives, and that, in all human probability, will be the hour of my death. As for you, who are young and active, delay not on my account, but fly, go. I give you back your promise. It is well, said Dante, then I shall also remain. Then rising and extending his hand with an air of solemnity over the old man's head, he slowly added, By the blood of Christ, I swear never to leave you while you live. Faria gazed fondly on his noble-minded, single-hearted, high-principled young friend, and read in his countenance ample confirmation of the sincerity of his devotion and the loyalty of his purpose. Thanks, murmured the invalid, extending one hand. I accept. You may one of these days reap the reward of your disinterested devotion, but as I cannot, and you will not quit this place, it becomes necessary to fill up the excavation beneath the soldier's gallery. He might, by chance, hear the hollow sound of his footsteps, and call the attention of his officer to the circumstance. That would bring about a discovery which would inevitably lead to our being separated. Go, then, and set about this work in which, unhappily, I can offer you no assistance. Keep at it all night, if necessary, and do not return here to-morrow till after the jailer is visited me. I shall have something of the greatest importance to communicate to you. Dante took the hand of the abbe in his, and affectionately pressed it. Faria smiled encouragingly on him, and the young man retired to his task in the spirit of obedience and respect which he had sworn to show towards his aged friend. End of chapter 17「He held open in his left hand, of which alone it will be recollected he retained the use, a sheet of paper, which from being constantly rolled into a small compass, had the form of a cylinder, and was not easily kept open. He did not speak, but showed the paper to Dante. "'What is that?' he inquired. "'Look at it,' said the abbé with a smile. "'I have looked at it with all possible attention,' said Dante." and I only see half-burnt paper, on which are traces of Gothic characters, inscribed with a peculiar can of ink. "'This paper, my friend,' said Faria, "'I may now avow to you, since I have the proof of your fidelity. This paper is my treasure, of which, from this day forth, 
One half belongs to you. The sweat started forth on Dante's brow. Until this day, and for how long a time, he had refrained from talking of the treasure which he had brought upon the abbe the accusation of madness. With his instinctive de delicacy, Edmond had preferred avoiding any touch on this painful cord, and Faria had been equally silent. He had taken the silence of the old man for a return to reason, and now these few words uttered by Faria after so painful a crisis seemed to indicate a serious relapse into mental alienation. "'Your treasure,' stammered Dante. Faria smiled. "'Yes,' said he. "'You have indeed a noble nature, Edmond, and I see by your paleness and agitation what is passing in your heart at this moment. No, be assured, I am not mad. This treasure exists, Dante, and if I have not been allowed to possess it, you will. Yes, you. No one would listen or believe me, because everyone thought me mad. But you, who must know that I am not, listen to me, and believe me so afterwards, if you will. Alas, murmured Edmond to himself, this is a terrible relapse. There was only this blow wanting. Then he said aloud, My dear friend, your attack has perhaps fatigued you. Had you not better repose a while? Tomorrow, if you will, I will hear your narrative, but today I wish to nurse you carefully. Besides, he said, a treasure is not a thing we need hurry about. On the contrary, it is a matter of the utmost importance, Edmund, replied the old man. Who knows if tomorrow, or the next day after, the third attack may not come on, and then must not all be over? Yes, indeed, I have often thought with a bitter joy that these riches which would make the wealth of a dozen families will be forever lost to those men who persecute me. This idea was one of vengeance to me, and I tasted it slowly in the night of my dungeon and the despair of my captivity. But now I have forgiven the world for the love of you. Now that I see you, young and with a promising future, now that I think of all that may result to you, in the good fortune of such a disclosure. I shudder at any delay, and tremble, lest I should not assure to one as worthy as yourself the possession of so vast an amount of hidden wealth. Edmond turned away his head with a sigh. You persist in your incredulity, Edmond, continued Faria. My words have not convinced you. I see you require proofs. Well, then, read this paper which I have never shown to any one. "'Tomorrow, my dear friend,' said Edmond, desirous of not yielding to the old man's madness. "'I thought it was understood that we should not talk of that until tomorrow.' "'Then we will not talk of it until tomorrow, but read this paper to-day.' "'I will not irritate him,' thought Edmond, and taking the paper of which half was wanting, having been burnt, no doubt by some accident, he read— this treasure, which may amount to two of Roman crowns in the most distant ah, uh, of the second opening, declare to belong to him allo heir. 25th April, 1490. Well, said Faria, when the young man had finished reading it. Why, replied Dante, I see nothing but broken lines and unconnected words, 
which are rendered illegible by fire. Yes, to you, my friend, who read them for the first time, but not for me, who have grown pale over them by many nights' study, and have reconstructed every phrase, completed every thought. And do you believe you have discovered the hidden meaning? I am sure I have, and you shall judge for yourself, but first listen to the history of this paper. Silence! exclaimed Dante. Steps approach. I go. Adieu. And Dante, happy to escape the history and explanation which would be sure to confirm his belief in his friend's mental instability, glided like a snake along the narrow passage, while Faria, restored by his alarm to a certain amount of activity, pushed the stone into place with his foot and covered it with a mat in order the more effectually to avoid discovery. It was the governor who, hearing of Faria's illness from the jailer, had come in person to see him. Faria sat up to receive him, avoiding all gestures in order that he might conceal from the governor the paralysis that had already half-stricken him with his death. His fear was lest the governor, touched with pity, might order him to be removed to better quarters and thus separate him from his young companion. But fortunately this was not the case, and the governor left him convinced that the poor madman for whom in his heart he felt a kind of affection, was only troubled with a slight indisposition. During this time, Edmond, seated on his bed with his head in his hands, tried to collect his scattered thoughts. Faria, since their first acquaintance, had been on all points so rational and logical, so wonderfully sagacious, in fact, that he couldn't understand how so much wisdom on all points could be allied with madness. Was Faria deceived as to his treasure, or was all the world deceived as to Faria? Dante remained in his cell all day, not daring to return to his friend, thinking thus to defer the moment when he should be convinced, once for all, that the abbé was mad. Such conviction would be so terrible. But towards the evening, after the hour for the customary visit had gone by, Faria, not seeing the young man appear, tried to move and get over the distance which separated them. Edmond shuddered when he heard the painful efforts which the old man made to drag himself along. His leg was inert, and he could no longer make use of one arm. Edmond was obliged to assist him, for otherwise he would not have been able to enter by the small aperture which led to Dante's chamber. "'Here I am, pursuing you remorselessly,' he said with a benignant smile. "'You thought to escape my munificence,' but it is in vain. Listen to me. Edmond saw there was no escape, and placing the old man on his bed, he seated himself on the stool beside him. You know, said the abbe, that I was the secretary and intimate friend of Cardinal Svada, the last of the princes of that name. I owe to this worthy lord all the happiness I have ever knew. He was not rich, although the wealth of his family had passed into a proverb, and I heard the phrase very often, as rich as a spada. But he, like public rumour, lived on his reputation for wealth. His palace was my paradise. I was tutor to his nephews, who are dead, and when he was alone in the world, I tried by absolute devotion to his will to make up to him all he had done for me during ten years of unremitting kindness. The cardinal's house had no secrets on me. 
I had often seen my noble patron annotating ancient volumes and eagerly searching amongst dusty family manuscripts. One day, when I was reproaching him for his unavailing searches and deploring the prostration of mind that followed them, he looked at me and, smiling bitterly, opened a volume relating to the history of the city of Rome. There, in the twentieth chapter of the life of Pope Alexander VI, were the following lines which I can never forget. The great wars of Romagna had ended. Caesar Borgia, who had completed his conquest, had need of money to purchase all Italy. The Pope had also need of money to bring matters to an end with Louis XII, King of France, who was formidable still in spite of his recent reverses, and it was necessary, therefore, to have recourse to some profitable scheme, which was a matter of great difficulty in the impoverished conditions of exhausted Italy. His Holiness had an idea. He determined to make two cardinals. By choosing two of the greatest personages of Rome, especially rich men, this was the return the Holy Father looked for. In the first place, he could sell the great appointments and splendid offices which the cardinals already held, and then he had the two hats to sell besides. There was a third point in view, which will appear hereafter. The Pope and Cesar Borgia first found the two future cardinals. They were Giovanni Rospagliosi, who held four of the highest dignities of the Holy See, and Cesar Spada, one of the noblest and richest of the Roman nobility. Both felt the high honour of such a favour from the Pope. They were ambitious, and Cesar Borgia soon found purchases for their appointments. The result was that Rospigliosi and Spada paid for being cardinals, and eight other persons paid for the offices the cardinals held before their elevation. And thus, 800,000 crowns entered into the coffers of the speculators. It is time now to proceed to the last part of the speculation. The Pope heaped attentions upon Rospigliosi and Spada, conferred upon them the insignia of the Cardinalate, and induced them to arrange their affairs and take up their residence at Rome. Then the Pope and Cesar Borgia invited the two Cardinals to dinner. This was a matter of dispute between the Holy Father and his son. Cesar thought they could make use of one of the means which he always had ready for his friends. That is to say, in the first place, the famous key which was given to certain persons with the request that they go and open a designated cupboard. This key was furnished with a small iron point, a negligence on the part of the locksmith. When this was pressed to effect the opening of the cupboard, of which the lock was difficult, the person was pricked by this small point and died next day. Then there was the ring with the lion's head, which Caesar wore when he wanted to greet his friends with a clasp of the hand. The lion bit the hand thus favoured, and at the end of twenty-four hours the bite was mortal. Caesar proposed to his father that they should either ask the cardinals to open the cupboard or shake hands with them. But Alexander VI replied, Now, as to the worthy cardinals Spada and Rospigliosi, 
Let us ask both of them to dinner. Something tells me that we should get that money back. Besides, you forget, Caesar. An indigestion declares itself immediately, while a prick or a bite occasions a delay of a day or two. Caesar gave way before such cogent reasoning, and the cardinals were consequently invited to dinner. The table was laid in a vineyard belonging to the Pope, near San Pierdarina, a charming retreat which the cardinals knew very well by report. Rospigliosi, quite set up with his new dignities, went with a good appetite, and his most ingratiating manner. Spada, a prudent man and greatly attached to his only nephew, a young captain of the highest promise, took paper and pen and made his will. He then sent word to his nephew to wait for him near the vineyard, but it appeared the servant did not find him. Spada knew what these invitations meant, since Christianity, so eminently civilizing, had made progress in Rome. It was no longer a centurion who came from the tyrant with a message. Caesar wills that you die. But it was a legate, a talatari, who came with a smile on his lips to say from the Pope, His Holiness requests you to dine with him. Spara set about two o'clock to San Piedrina. The Pope awaited him. The first sight that attracted the eyes of Spara was that of his nephew in full costume and Cesar Borgia paying him most marked attentions. Spada turned pale as Cesar looked at him with an ironical air which proved that he had anticipated all and that the snare was well spread. They began that dinner and Spada was only able to inquire of his nephew if he had received his message. The nephew replied no, perfectly comprehending the meaning of the question. It was too late, for he had already drunk a glass of excellent wine, placed for him expressly by the Pope's butler. Spada, at the same moment, saw another bottle approach him, which he was pressed to taste. An hour afterwards, a physician declared they were both poisoned through eating mushrooms. Spada died on the threshold of the vineyard. The nephew expired at his own door, making signs which his wife could not comprehend. Then Cesar and the Pope hastened to lay hands on the heritage, under presence of seeking for papers of the dead man. But the inheritance consisted in this only, a scrap of paper on which Spada had written, I bequeath to my beloved nephew my coffers, my books, and, amongst others, my breviary, with the gold corners, which I beg he will preserve in remembrance of his affectionate uncle. The heirs are sought everywhere, admired the breviary, laid hands on the furniture, and were greatly astonished that Spada, the rich man, was really the most miserable of uncles. No treasures, unless they were those of science, contained in the library and laboratories. That was all. Cesar and his father searched examined, scrutinized, but found nothing, or at least very little, not exceeding a few thousand crowns in plate, and about the same in ready money. But the nephew had time to say to his wife before he expired, Look well among my uncle's papers. There is a will. They saw it even more thoroughly than the august heirs had done. 
but it was fruitless. There were two palaces and a vineyard behind the Palatine Hill. But in these days landed property had not much value, and the two palaces and the vineyard remained to the family, since they were beneath the rapacity of the Pope and his son. Months and years rolled on. Alexander VI died, poisoned. You know by what mistake. Caesar, poisoned at the same time, escaped by shedding his skin like a snake. But the new skin was spotted by the poison, till it looked like a tiger's. Then, compelled to quit Rome, he went and got himself obscurely killed in a night skirmish, scarcely noticed in history. After the Pope's death and his son's exile, it was supposed that that Sparta family would resume the splendid position they had held before the Cardinal's time. But this was not the case. The Spadas remained in doubtful ease. A mystery hung over this dark affair, and the public rumour was that Caesar, a better politician than his father, had carried off from the Pope the fortune of the two cardinals. I say the two because Cardinal Rospigliosi, who had not taken any precaution, was completely despoiled. Up to this point, said Faria, interrupting the thread of his narrative, this seems to you very meaningless, no doubt, eh? Oh, my friend, cried Dante, on the contrary, it seems as if I were reading a most interesting narrative. Go on, I beg of you. I will. The family began to get accustomed to their obscurity. Years rolled on, and amongst the descendants, some were soldiers, others diplomatists, some churchmen, some bankers, some grew rich and some were ruined. I come now to the last of the family, whose secretary I was, the Count of Spada. I had often heard him complain of the disproportion of his rank with his fortune, and I advised him to invest all he had in an annuity. He did so, and thus doubled his income. The celebrated breviary remained in the family, and was in the Count's possession. It had been handed down from father to son, for the singular clause of the only will that had been found, and caused it to be regarded as a genuine relic, preserved in the family with superstitious veneration. It was an illuminated book with beautiful Gothic characters, and so weighty with gold that a servant always carried it before the cardinal on days of great solemnity. At the sight of papers of all sorts, titles, contracts, parchments, which were kept in the archives of the family, all descending from the poisoned cardinal, I in my turn examined the immense bundles of documents, like twenty servitors, stewards, secretaries before me. But in spite of the most exhaustive researches, I found nothing. Yet I had read, I had even written a precise history of the Borgia family, for the sole purpose of assuring myself whether any increase of fortune had occurred to them on the death of the Cardinal Cesar Spada, but could only trace the acquisition of the property of the Cardinal Rospigliosi, his companion in misfortune. I was then almost assured that the inheritance had neither profited the Borgias nor the family, but had remained unpossessed like the treasures of the Arabian Nights, which slept in the bosom of the earth, under the eyes of the genie. 
I searched, ransacked, counted, calculated a thousand and a thousand times the income and expenditure of the family for three hundred years. It was useless. I remained in my ignorance and the Count of Spada in his poverty. My patron died. He had reserved from his annuity his family papers, his library, composed of five thousand volumes, and his famous bravery. All these he bequeathed to me, with a thousand Roman crowns, which he had in ready money, on condition that I would have anniversary masses said for the repose of his soul, and that I would draw up a genealogical tree and history of his house. All this I did scrupulously. Be easy, my dear Edmond, we are near the conclusion. In 1807, a month before I was arrested, and a fortnight after the death of the Count of Spada, on the 25th of December, you will see presently how the date became fixed in my memory. I was reading for the thousandth time the papers I was arranging, for the palace was sold to a stranger, and I was going to leave Rome and settle at Florence, intending to take with me twelve thousand francs I possessed, my library and the famous breviary, when, tired with my inconstant labour at the very same thing, and overcome by a heavy dinner I had eaten, my head dropped on my hands, and I fell asleep about three o'clock in the afternoon. I awoke as the clock was striking six. I raised my head. I was in utter darkness. I rang for a light, but as no one came I determined to find one for myself. It was indeed but anticipating the simple manners which I should soon be under the necessity of adopting. I took a wax candle in one hand and with the other groped about for a piece of paper, my matchbox being empty, with which I proposed to get a light from the small flame still playing on the embers. Fearing, however, to make use of any valuable piece of paper, I hesitated for a moment then recollected that I had seen in the famous breviary, which was on the table beside me, an old paper quite yellow with age, and which had served as a marker for centuries, kept there by the request of the heirs. I felt for it, found it, twisted it together and put it into the expiring flame, set a light to it. But beneath my fingers, as if by magic, in proportion as the fire ascended, I saw yellowish characters appear on the paper. I grasped it in my hand, put out the flames as quickly as I could, lighted my taper in the fire itself, and opened the crumpled paper with inexpressible emotion, recognizing when I had done so that these characters had been traced in mysterious and sympathetic ink, only appearing when exposed to the fire. Nearly one-third of the paper had been consumed by the flame. It was that paper you read this morning. Read it again, Dante, and then I will complete for you the incomplete words and unconnected sense. Faria, with an air of triumph, offered the paper to Dante, who this time read the following words, traced with an ink of a red-dish colour resembling rust. This 25th day of April, 1498, B, Alexander VI, and fearing that not, he may desire to become my heir and re... 
and Bentivoglio, who were poisoned, my sole heir that I have but, and has visited with me, that is in island of Monte Cristo, all I pos, jewels, diamonds, gems, that I alone may amount to nearly the two mil, will find on raising the twentieth row, creek to the east in a right line, too open. In these caves, the treasure is in the furthest a, which treasure I bequeath and leave en, as my sole heir. 25th April 1498, says, And now, said the abbe, read this other paper, and he presented to Dante a second leaf, with fragments of lines written on it, which Edmond read as follows. Ing invited to dine by his holiness, content with making me pay for my hat, serves for me the fate of Cardinals Caprara. I declare to my nephew Guido Spada, Read in a place he knows, the caves of the small, est of Imgot's gold money, know of the existence of this treasure which lions of Roman crowns and which he from the small ings have been made, Ingle in the second, tire to him, are Spada. Faria followed him with an excited look. And now, he said, when he saw that Dante had read the last line, put the two fragments together and judge for yourself. Dante obeyed, and the conjointed pieces gave the following. This 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI, and fearing that, not content with making me pay for my hat, he may desire to become my heir, and reserves for me the fate of Cardinals Caprara and Bentivoglio, who were poisoned, I declare to my nephew, Guido Spada, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows and has visited with me, that is, in the caves of the small island of Monte Cristo, all I possessed of ingots, gold, money, jewels, diamonds, gems, that I alone know of the existence of this treasure which may amount to nearly two millions of Roman crowns and which he will find on raising the twentieth rock from the small creek to the east in a right line. Two openings have been made in these caves. The treasure is in the furthest, angle in the second. Which treasure I bequeath and leave entire to him as my sole heir. 25th April, 1498 says our spada. Well, do you comprehend now? inquired Faria. It is the declaration of Cardinal Spada, and the will so long sought for, replied Edmond, still incredulous. Yes, a thousand times yes. And who completed it as it is now? I did, aided by the remaining fragment. I guessed the rest measuring the length of the lines by those of the paper and divining the hidden meaning by means of what was in part revealed as we are guided in a cavern by the small ray of light above us. And what did you do when you arrived at this conclusion? I resolved to set out and did set out at that very instant, carrying with me the beginning of my great work, the unity of the Italian kingdom. But for some time the imperial police who at this period 
quite contrary to what Napoleon desired so soon as he had son born to him, wished for a partition of provinces, had their eyes on me, and my hasty departure, the cause of which they were unable to guess, having aroused their suspicions. I was arrested at the very moment I was leaving Piombino. Now, continued Faria, addressing Dante with an almost paternal expression, now, my dear fellow, you know as much as I do myself. If we ever escape together, half of this treasure is yours. If I die here, and you escape alone, the whole belongs to you. But, inquired Dante, hesitating, has this treasure no more legitimate possessor in the world than ourselves? No, no, be easy on that score. The family is extinct. The last count of Spada, moreover, made me his heir, bequeathing to me this symbolic breviary. He bequeathed to me all it contained. No, no, make your mind satisfied on that point. If we lay hands on this fortune, we may enjoy it without remorse. And you say this treasure amounts to two millions of Roman crowns, nearly thirteen millions of our money. Impossible! said Dante, staggered at the enormous amount. Impossible? And why? asked the old man. The Spada family was one of the oldest and most powerful families of the fifteenth century, and in those times when other opportunities for investment were wanting, such accumulations of gold and jewels were by no means rare. There are at this day Roman families perishing of hunger, though possessed of nearly a million in diamonds and jewels, handed down by entail, and which they cannot touch. Edmond thought he was in a dream. He wavered between incredulity and joy. I have only kept this secret so long from you, continued Faria, that I might test your character, and then surprise you. Had we escaped before my attack of catalepsy, I should have conducted you to Monte Cristo now, he added with a sigh. It is you who will conduct me thither. Well, Dante, you do not thank me? This treasure belongs to you, my dear friend, replied Dante, and to you only. I have no right to it. I am no relation of yours. You are my son, Dante, exclaimed the old man. You are the child of my captivity. My profession condemns me to celibacy. God has sent you to me to console at one and the same time, the man who could not be a father, and the prisoner who could not get free. And Faria extended the arm of which alone the use remained to him, to the young man, who threw himself upon his neck and wept. End of chapter 18《Chapter 19 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 The Third Attack. Now that this treasure, which had so long been the object of the Abbe's meditations, could ensure the future happiness of him whom Faria really loved as a son, it had doubled its value in his eyes, and every day he expatiated on the amount explaining to Dante all the good which, with thirteen or fourteen millions of francs, 
a man could do in these days to his friends, and then Dante's countenance became gloomy, for the oath of vengeance he had taken recurred to his memory, and he reflected how much ill in these times a man with thirteen or fourteen million could do to his enemies. The abbe did not know the island of Monte Cristo, but Dante knew it, and had often passed it, situated twenty-five miles from Pianosa, between Corsica and the island of Elba, and had once touched there. This island was, always had been, and still is, completely deserted. It is a rock of almost conical form, which looks as though it had been thrust up by volcanic force from the depths to the surface of the ocean. Dante drew a plan of the island for Faria, and Faria gave Dante advice as to the means he should employ to recover the treasure. But Dante was far from being as enthusiastic and confident as the old man. It was past a question now that Faria was not a lunatic, and the way in which he had achieved the discovery, which had given rise to the suspicion of his madness, increased Edmond's admiration of him. But at the same time, Dante could not believe that the deposit supposing it had ever existed, still existed, and though he considered the treasure as by no means chimerical, he yet believed it was no longer there. However, as if fate resolved on depriving the prisoners of their last chance, and making them understand that they were condemned to perpetual imprisonment, a new misfortune befell them. The gallery on the seaside, which had long been in ruins, was rebuilt. They had repaired it completely, and stopped up with vast masses of stone the hole Dante had partly filled in. But for this precaution, which it will be remembered the abbe had made to Edmond, the misfortune would have been still greater, for their attempt to escape would have been detected, and they would undoubtedly have been separated. Thus a new, a stronger and more inexorable barrier was interposed to cut off the realisation of their hopes. You see said the young man with an air of sorrowful resignation to Faria, that God deems it right to take from me any claim to merit for what you call my devotion to you. I have promised to remain forever with you, and now I could not break my promise if I would. The treasure will be no more mine than yours, and neither of us will quit this prison. But my real treasure is not that, my dear friend, which awaits me beneath the sombre rocks of Monte Cristo. It is your presence, our living together five or six hours a day, in spite of our jailers. It is the rays of intelligence you have elicited from my brain, the language you have implanted in my memory, and which have taken root there with all their philological ramifications. These different science that you have made so easy to me by the depth of the knowledge you possess of them, and the clearness of the principles to which you have reduced them, this is my treasure, my beloved friend, and with this you have made me rich and happy. Believe me and take comfort. This is better for me than tons of gold and cases of diamonds, even were they not as problematical as the clouds we see in the morning floating over the sea, which we take for terra firma, and which evaporate and vanish as we draw near to them. To have you as long as possible near me, to hear your eloquent speech, which embellishes my mind, strengthens my soul, and makes my old frame capable of great and terrible things, if I should ever be free, so fills my whole existence, that the despair to which I was just on the point of yielding 
when I knew you, has no longer any hold over me. And this, this is my fortune, not chimerical, but actual. I owe you my real good, my present happiness, and all the sovereigns of the earth, even Caesar Bourgia himself, could not deprive me of this. Thus, if not actually happy, yet the days these two unfortunates passed together went quickly. Faria, who for so long a time had kept silence as to the treasure, now perpetually talked of it. As he had prophesied would be the case, he remained paralysed in the right arm and the left leg, and had given up all hope of ever enjoying it himself. But he was continually thinking over some means of escape for his young companion, and anticipating the pleasure he would enjoy. For fear the letter might be some day lost or stolen, he compelled Dante to learn it by heart, and Dante knew it from the first to the last word. Then he destroyed the second portion, assured that if the first were seized, no one would be able to discover its real meaning. Whole hours passed while Faria was giving instructions to Dante, instructions which were to serve him when he was at liberty. Then, once free from the day and hour and moment when he was so, he could have but only one thought, which was to gain Monte Cristo by some means, and remain there alone under some pretext which would arouse no suspicions, and once there to endeavour to find the wonderful caverns and search in the appointed spot, the appointed spot, be it remembered, being the farthest angle in the second opening. In the meanwhile, the hours passed, if not rapidly, at least tolerably. Faria, as we have said, without having recovered the use of his hand and foot, had regained all the clearness of his understanding, and had gradually, besides the moral instructions we have detailed, taught his youthful companion the patient and sublime duty of a prisoner, who learns to make something from nothing. They were thus perpetually employed. Faria, that he might not see himself grow old. Dante, for fear of recalling the almost extinct past, which now only floated in his memory like a distant light, wandering in the night. So life went on for them, as it does for those who are not victims of misfortune, and whose activities glide along mechanically and tranquilly beneath the eye of providence. But beneath his superficial calm, there were in the heart of the young man, and perhaps in that of the old man, many repressed desires, many stifled sighs, which would vent when Faria was left alone, and when Edmond returned to his cell. One night, Edmund awoke suddenly, believing that he heard someone calling him. He opened his eyes upon utter darkness. His name, or rather a plaintive voice which essayed to pronounce his name, reached him. He sat up in bed, and a cold sweat broke out upon his brow. Undoubtedly the call came from Faria's dungeon. Alas, murmured Edmond, can it be? He moved his bed drew up the stone, rushed into the passage, and reached the opposite extremity. The secret entrance was open. By the light of the wretched and wavering lamp of which we have spoken, Dante saw the old man, pale, but yet erect, clinging to the bedstead. His features were writhing with those horrible symptoms which he already knew, and which had so seriously alarmed him when he saw them for the first time. 
Alas, my dear friend, said Faria in a resigned tone, you understand, do you not? And I need not attempt to explain to you. Edmond uttered a cry of agony, and quite out of his senses rushed towards the door, exclaiming, Help! Help! Faria had just sufficient strength to restrain him. Silence, he said, or you are lost. We must now only think of you, my dear friend, and so act as to render your captivity supportable or your flight possible. It would require years to do again what I have done here, and the results would be instantly destroyed if our jailers knew we have communicated with each other. Besides, be assured, my dear Edmond, the dungeon I am about to leave will not long remain empty. Some other unfortunate being will soon take my place, and to him you will appear like an angel of salvation. Perhaps he will be younger, strong, and enduring like yourself, and will aid you in your escape, while I have been but a hindrance. You will no longer have half a dead body tied to you as a drag to all your movements. At length, Providence has done something for you. He restores to you more than he takes away. And it was time I should die. Edmond could only clasp his hands and exclaim, Oh, my friend, my friend, speak not thus. And then, resuming all his presence of mind, which had for a moment staggered under this blow and his strength which had failed at the words of the old man, he said, Oh, I have saved you once, and I will save you a second time. And raising the foot of the bed, he drew out the phial, still a third filled with the red liquor. See, he exclaimed, there remains still some of the magic draught. Quick, quick, tell me what I must do this time. Are there any fresh instructions? Speak, my friend, I listen. There is not a hope, replied Faria, shaking his head. But no matter. God wills it that man whom he has created, and in whose heart he has so profoundly rooted the love of life, should do all in his power to preserve that existence, which, however painful it may be, is yet always so dear. Oh, yes, yes, exclaimed Dante, and I tell you that I will save you yet. Well, then, try. The cold gains upon me. I feel the blood flowing towards my brain. These horrible chills, which make my teeth chatter and seem to dislocate my bones, begin to pervade my whole frame. In five minutes the malady will reach its height, and in a quarter of an hour there will be nothing left of me but a corpse. Oh! exclaimed Dante, his heart wrung with anguish. Do as you did before, only do not wait so long. All the springs of life are now exhausted in me, and death, he continued looking at his paralysed arm and leg, has but half its work to do. If after having made me swallow twelve drops instead of ten, you see that I do not recover, then pour the rest down my throat. Now lift me on my bed, for I can no longer support myself. Edmond took the old man in his arms and laid him on the bed. And now, my dear friend, said Faria, sole consolation of my wretched existence, you whom heaven gave me somewhat late, but still gave me a priceless gift, 
and for which I am most grateful. At the moment of separating from you forever, I wish you all the happiness and all the prosperity you so well deserve, my son. I bless thee. The young man cast himself on his knees, leaning his head against the old man's bed. Listen now to what I say in this my dying moment. The treasure of the spadas exists. God grants me the boon of vision unrestricted by time or space. I see it in the depths of the inner cavern. My eyes pierce the inmost recesses of the earth and are dazzled at the sight of so much riches. If you do escape, remember that the poor abbe, whom all the world called mad, was not so. Hasten to Monte Cristo, avail yourself of the fortune, for you have indeed suffered long enough. A violent convulsion attacked the old man. Dante raised his head and saw Faria's eyes injected with blood. It seemed as if a flow of blood had ascended from the chest to the head. Adieu, adieu, murmured the old man, clasping Edmond's hand convulsively. Adieu! Oh, no, no, not yet, he cried. Do not forsake me. Oh, succor him. Help, help, help. Hush, hush, murmured the dying man, that they may not separate us if you save me. You are right. Oh, yes, yes, be assured, I shall save you. Besides, although you suffer much, you do not seem to be in such agony as you were before. Do not a mistake. I suffer less because there is in me less strength to endure. At your age, we have faith in life. It is the privilege of youth to believe and hope. But old men see death more clearly. Oh, tis here, tis here, tis over. My sight is gone, my senses fail. Your hand, Dante, adieu, adieu and raising himself by a final effort, in which he summoned all his faculties, he said, Monte Cristo, forget not, Monte Cristo. And he fell back on the bed. The crisis was terrible, and a rigid form with twisted limbs, swollen eyelids and lips flecked with bloody foam, lay on the bed of torture in place of the intellectual being who so lately rested there. Dante took the lamp, placed it on a projecting stone above the bed, whence its tremulous light fell with strange and fantastic ray on the distorted countenance and motionless, stiffened body. With steady gaze he awaited confidently the moment for administering the restorative. When he believed that the right moment had arrived, he took the knife, pried open the teeth which offered less resistance than before, counted one after the other twelve drops and watched. The file contained perhaps twice as much more. He waited ten minutes, a quarter of an hour, half an hour. No change took place. Trembling, his hair erect, his brow bathed with perspiration, he counted the seconds by the beating of his heart. Then he thought it was time to make the last trial, and he put the file to the purple lips of Faria, and without having occasion to force open his jaws, which had remained extended, he poured the whole of the liquid down his throat. The draught produced a galvanic effect. 
A violent trembling pervaded the old man's limbs. His eyes opened until it was fearful to gaze upon them. He heaved a sigh which resembled a shriek, and then his convulsed body returned gradually to its former immobility, the eyes remaining open. Half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half elapsed, and during this period of anguish Edmond leaned over his friend, his hand applied to his heart, and felt the body gradually grow cold, and the heart's pulsation become more and more deep and dull, until at length it stopped. The last movement of the heart ceased. The face became livid. The eyes remained open, but the eyeballs were glazed. It was six o'clock in the morning. The dawn was just breaking, and its feeble ray came into the dungeon, and paled the ineffectual light of the lamp. Strange shadows passed over the countenance of the dead man, and at times gave it the appearance of life. While the struggle between day and night lasted, Dante still doubted. But as soon as the daylight gained the preeminence, he saw that he was alone with a corpse. Then an invincible and extreme terror seized upon him, and he dared not again press the hand that hung out of bed. He dared no longer to gaze on those fixed and vacant eyes, which he tried many times to close, but in vain. They opened again as soon as shut. He extinguished the lamp carefully, concealed it, and then went away, closing as well as he could the entrance to the secret passage by the large stone as he descended. It was time, for the jailer was coming. On this occasion he began his rounds at Dante's cell, and on leaving him he went on to Faria's dungeon, taking thither breakfast and some linen. Nothing betokened that the man knew anything of what had occurred. He went on his way. Dante was then seized with an indescribable desire to know what was going on in the dungeon of his unfortunate friend. He therefore returned by the subterraneous gallery, and arrived in time to hear the exclamations of the turnkey, who called out for help. Other turnkeys came, and then was heard the regular tramp of soldiers. Last of all came the governor. Edmond heard the creaking of the bed as they moved the corpse, heard the voice of the governor who asked them to throw water on the dead man's face, and seeing that in spite of this application the prisoner did not recover, they sent for the doctor. The governor then went out, and words of pity fell on Dante's listening ears, mingled with brutal laughter. "'Well, well,' said one, "'the madman has gone to look after his treasure. Good journey to him. <laughs> "'With all his millions, he will not have enough to pay for his shroud,' said another. "'Oh,' added a third voice, "'the shrouds of the Chateau d'If are not dear.' "'Perhaps,' said one of the previous speakers. As he was a churchman, they may go to some expense in his behalf. They may give him the honours of the sack. <laughs> Edmund did not lose a word, but comprehended very little of what was said. The voices soon ceased, and it seemed to him as if every one had left the cell. Still, he dared not enter, as they might have left some turnkey to watch the dead. He remained, therefore, mute and motionless, hardly venturing to breathe. At the end of an hour he heard a faint noise which increased. It was the governor who returned, followed by the doctor and other attendants. There was a moment's silence. 
it was evident that the doctor was examining the dead body. The inquiry soon commenced. The doctor analysed the symptoms of the malady to which the prisoner had succumbed, and declared that he was dead. Questions and answers followed in a nonchalant manner that made Dante indignant, for he felt that all the world should have for the poor abbe a love and respect equal to his own. "'I am very sorry for what you tell me,' said the governor, replying to the assurance of the doctor, "'that the old man is really dead, for he was a quiet, inoffensive prisoner, happy in his folly, and required no watching.' "'Oh,' added the turnkey, "'there was no occasion for watching him. He would have stayed here fifty years. I'll answer for it.' without any attempt to escape. Still, said the governor, I believe it will be requisite, notwithstanding your certainty, and not that I doubt your science, but in discharge of my official duty that we should be perfectly assured that the prisoner is dead. There was a moment of complete silence, during which Dante, still listening, knew that the doctor was examining the corpse a second time. You may make your mind easy, said the doctor. He is dead. I will answer for that. You know, sir, said the governor, persisting, that we are not content in such cases as this with such a simple examination. In spite of all appearances, be so kind, therefore, as to finish your duty by fulfilling the formalities described by law. Let the irons be heated, said the doctor. "'But really it is a useless precaution.' "'This order to heat the irons made Dante shudder. "'He heard hasty steps, the creaking of a door, "'people going and coming, and some minutes afterwards "'a turnkey entered, saying, "'Here is the brazier, lighted.' "'There was a moment's silence, "'and then was heard the crackling of burning flesh, "'of which the peculiar and nauseous smell penetrated even behind the wall where Dante was listening in horror. The perspiration poured forth upon the young man's brow, and he felt as if he should faint. "'You see, sir, he is really dead,' said the doctor. "'This burn in the heel is decisive. The poor fool is cured of his folly and delivered from his captivity.' "'Wasn't his name Faria?' inquired one of the officers who accompanied the governor. "'Yes, sir, and, as he said, it was an ancient name. "'He was, too, very learned and rational enough on all points "'which did not relate to his treasure. "'But on that, indeed, he was intractable. "'It is the sort of malady which we call monomania,' said the doctor. "'You had never anything to complain of?' said the governor to the jailer, "'who had charge of the abbey. "'Never, sir.' replied the jailer. Never, on the contrary, he seemed to amuse me very much by telling me stories. One day, too, when my wife was ill, he gave me a prescription which cured her. Aha, said the doctor. I did not know that I had a rival, but I hope, Governor, that you will show him all proper respect. Yes, yes, make your mind easy. He shall be decently interred in the newest sack we can find. "'Will that satisfy you? "'Must this last formality take place in your presence, sir?' inquired a turnkey. "'Certainly, but make haste. "'I cannot stay here all day.' "'Other footsteps going and coming were now heard, "'and the moment afterwards 
A noise of rustling canvas reached Dante's ears. The bed creaked, and the heavy footfall of a man who lifts a weight sounded on the floor. Then the bed again creaked under the weight deposited upon it. "'This evening,' said the governor. "'Will there be any mass?' asked one of the attendants. "'That is impossible,' replied the governor. "'The chaplain of the chateau came to me yesterday to beg for leave of absence, in order to take a trip to Hier for a week. I told him I would attend to the prisoners in his absence. If the poor abbe had not been in such a hurry, he might have had his requiem.' "'Poo, poo!' said the doctor, with the impiety usual in persons of his profession. "'He is a churchman. God will respect his profession, and not give the devil the wicked delight of sending him a priest.' A shout of laughter followed this brutal jest. Meanwhile, the operation of putting the body in the sack was going on. "'This evening,' said the governor, when the task was ended. "'At what hour?' inquired a turnkey. "'Why, about ten or eleven o'clock. "'Shall we watch by the cops? "'Of what use would it be? "'Shut the dungeon as if you were alive, that is all.' "'Then the steps retreated.' and the voices died away in the distance. The noise of the door with its creaking hinges and bolts ceased, and a silence more sombre than that of solitude ensued, the silence of death, which was all-pervasive, and struck its icy chill to the very soul of Dante. Then he raised the flagstone cautiously with his head, and looked carefully around the chamber. It was empty and Dante emerged from the tunnel. End of chapter 19on the bed, at full length and faintly illuminated by the pale light that came from the window, lay a sack of canvas, and under its rude folds was stretched a long and stiffened form. It was Ferrier's last winding sheet. A winding sheet which, as the turnkey said, cost so little. Everything was in readiness. A barrier had been placed between Dante and his old friend. No longer could Edmond look into those wide open eyes which had seemed to be penetrating the mysteries of death. No longer could he clasp the hand which had done so much to make his existence blessed. Faria, the beneficent and cheerful companion with whom he was accustomed to live so intimately, no longer breathed. He seated himself on the edge of that terrible bed and fell into melancholy and gloomy reverie. Alone, he was alone again, again condemned to silence, again face to face with nothingness. Alone, never again to see the face, never again to hear the voice of the only human being who united him to earth. Was not Faria's fate the better, after all, to solve the problem of life at its source, even at the risk of horrible suffering? The idea of suicide, which his friend had driven away and kept away by his cheerful presence, now hovered like a phantom over the abbe's dead body. If I could die, he said, I should go where he goes, and should assuredly find him again. But how to die? It is very easy, he went on with a smile. I will remain here 
rush on the first person that opens the door, strangle him, and then they will guillotine me. But excessive grief is like a storm at sea where the frail bark is tossed from the depths to the top of the wave. Dante recoiled from the idea of so infamous a death and passed suddenly from despair to an ardent desire for life and liberty. Die? Oh no, he exclaimed. Not die now, after having lived and suffered so long and so much. Die? Yes, had I died years ago, but now to die would be indeed to give away to the sarcasm of destiny. No, I want to live. I shall struggle to the very last. I will yet win back the happiness of which I have been deprived. Before I die, I must not forget that I have my executioners to punish, and perhaps too, who knows, some friends to reward. Yet they will forget me here, and I shall die in my dungeon like Faria. As he said this, he became silent and gazed straight before him, like one overwhelmed with a strange and amazing thought. Suddenly he arose, lifted his hand to his brow as if his brain were giddy, paced twice or thrice round the dungeon, and then paused abruptly by the bed. "'Just God,' he muttered, "'whence comes this thought? Is it from thee? Since none but the dead pass freely from this dungeon, let me take the place of the dead.' Without giving himself time to reconsider his decision, and indeed that he might not allow his thoughts to be distracted from his desperate resolution, he bent over the appalling shroud, opened it with the knife which Faria had made, drew the corpse from the sack and bore it along the tunnel to his own chamber, laid it on his couch, tied around its head the rag he wore at night around his own, covered it with his counterpane, once again kissed the ice-cold brow, and tried vainly to close the resisting eyes which glared horribly, turned the head towards the wall so that the jailer might, when he brought the evening meal, believe that he was asleep, as was his frequent custom, entered the tunnel again, drew the bed against the wall, returned to the other cell, took from the hiding place the needle and thread, flung off his rags that they might feel only naked flesh beneath the coarse canvas, and getting inside the sack, placed himself in the posture in which the dead body had been laid, and sewed up the mouth of the sack from the inside. He would have been discovered by the beating of his heart if by any mischance the jailers had entered at that moment. Dante might have waited until the evening visit was over, but he was afraid that the governor would change his mind and order the dead body to be removed earlier. In that case, his last hope would have been destroyed. Now, his plans were fully made, and this is what he intended to do. If while he was being carried out the gravediggers should discover that they were bearing a live instead of a dead body, Dante did not intend to give them time to recognise him, but with a sudden cut of the knife he meant to open the sack from top to bottom, and profiting by their alarm, escape. If they tried to catch him, he would use his knife to better purpose. If they took him to the cemetery and laid him in a grave, he would allow himself to be covered with earth, and then, as it was night, the gravediggers could scarcely have turned their backs before he would have worked his way through the yielding soil and escaped. He hoped that the weight of earth would not be so great that he could not overcome it. If he was detected in this and the earth proved too heavy, he would be stifled, and then, so much the better, all would be over. Dante had not eaten since the preceding evening, but he had not thought of hunger, 
nor did he think of it now. His situation was too precarious to allow him even time to reflect on any thought but one. The first risk that Dante ran was that the jailer, when he brought him his supper at seven o'clock, might perceive the change that had been made, fortunately twenty times at least, from misanthropy or fatigue. Dante had rece received his jailer in bed, and then the man placed his bread and soup on the table and went away without saying a word. This time the jailer might not be as silent as usual, but speak to Dante, and seeing that he received no reply, go to the bed, and thus discover all. When seven o'clock came, Dante's agony really began. His hand placed upon his heart was unable to redress its throbbings, while with the other he wiped the perspiration from his temples. From time to time, chills ran through his whole body and clutched his heart in a grasp of ice. Then he thought he was going to die. Yet the hours passed on without any unusual disturbance, and Dante knew that he had escaped the first peril. It was a good augury. At length, about the hour the governor had appointed, footsteps were heard on the stairs. Edmond felt that the moment had arrived, summoned up all his courage, held his breath, and would have been happy if at the same time he could have repressed the throbbing of his veins. The footsteps, they were double, paused at the door, and Dante guessed that the two grave-diggers had come to seek him. This idea was soon converted into certainty when he heard the noise they made in putting down the hand-beer. The door opened and the dim light reached Dante's eyes through the coarse sack that covered him. He saw two shadows approach his bed, a third remaining at the door with a torch in its hand. The two men approaching their ends of the bed took the sack by its extremities. "'He's heavy enough, though, for an old thin man,' said one as he raised the head. "'They say every year adds half a pound to the weight of the bones,' said another, lifting the feet. "'Have you tied the knot?' inquired the first speaker. "'What would be the use of carrying so much more weight?' was the reply. "'I can do that when we get there.' "'Yes, you're right,' replied the companion. "'What's the nut for?' thought Dante. They deposited the supposed corpse on the bier. Edmund stiffened himself in order to play the part of a dead man, and then the party, lighted by the man with the torch, who went first, ascended the stairs. Suddenly he felt the fresh and sharp night air, and Dante knew that the mistral was blowing. It was a sensation in which pleasure and pain were strangely mingled. The bearers went on for twenty paces, then stopped, putting the beer down on the ground. One of them went away, and Dante heard his shoes striking on the pavement. "'Where am I?' he asked himself. "'Really, he is by no means a light load,' said the other bearer sitting on the edge of the hand-barrow. Dante's first impulse was to escape, but fortunately he did not attempt it. "'Give us a light,' said the other bearer, "'or I shall never find what I am looking for.' The man with the torch complied, although not asked in the most polite terms. "'What can he be looking for?' thought Edmond. "'The spade, perhaps.' An exclamation of satisfaction indicated that the grave-digger had found the object of his search. "'Here it is at last,' he said. "'Not without some trouble, though.' "'Yes,' was the answer. "'But he has lost nothing by waiting.' As he said this, the man came towards Edmund, who heard a heavy, metallic substance laid down beside him, 
and at the same moment a cord was fastened around his feet with sudden and painful violence. "'Well, have you tied the nut?' inquired the grave-digger, who was looking on. "'Yes, and pretty tight, too, I can tell you,' was the answer. "'Move on, then.' And the beer was lifted once more, and they proceeded. They advanced fifty paces farther, and then stopped to open a door, then went forward again. The noise of the waves dashing against the rocks on which the chateau is built reached Dante's ear distinctly as they went forward. "'Bad weather,' observed one of the bearers. "'Not a pleasant night for a dip in the sea.' "'Why, yes. The abbey runs a chance of being wet,' said the other. And then there was a burst of brutal laughter. Dante did not comprehend the jest, but his hair stood erect on his head. "'Well, here we are at last,' said one of them. "'A little farther, a little farther,' said the other. "'You know very well that the last was stopped on his way, dashed on the rocks, "'and the governor told us next day that we were careless fellows.' They ascended five or six more steps, and then Dante felt that they took him one by the head and the other by the heels and swung him to and fro. "'One,' said the grave-diggers. Two, three, and at the same instant Dante felt himself flung into the air like a wounded bird, falling, falling with a rapidity that made his blood curdle. Although drawn downwards by the heavy weight which hastened his rapid descent, it seemed to him as if the fall lasted for a century. At last, with a horrible splash, he darted like an arrow into the ice-cold water, and as he did so he uttered a shrill cry, stifled in a moment by his immersion beneath the waves. Dante had been flung into the sea, and was dragged into its depths by a thirty-six-pound shot tied to his feet. The sea is the cemetery of the Chateau d'If. End of chapter 20「Dante, although stunned and almost suffocated, had sufficient presence of mind to hold his breath, and as his right hand, prepared as he was for every chance, held his knife open, he rapidly ripped up the sack excavated his arm and then his body, but in spite of all his efforts to free himself from the shot, he felt it dragging him down still lower. He then bent his body and by a desperate effort severed the cord that bound his legs at the moment when it seemed as if he were actually strangled. With a mighty leap he rose to the surface of the sea while the shot dragged down to the depths the sack that had so nearly become his shroud. Dante waited only to get breath, and then dived in order to avoid being seen. When he arose a second time, he was fifty paces from where he had first sunk. He saw overhead a black and tempestuous sky, across which the wind was driving clouds that occasionally suffered a twinkling star to appear. Before him was the vast expanse of waters, sombre and terrible, whose waves foamed and roared, as if before the approach of a storm. Behind him, Blacker than the sea, blacker than the sky, rose phantom-like the vast stone structure whose projecting crags seemed like arms extended to seize their prey, 
and on the highest rock was a torch lighting two figures. He fancied that these two forms were looking at the sea. Doubtless these strange grave diggers had heard his cry. Dante dived again and remained a long time beneath the water. This was an easy feat to him, for he usually attracted a crowd of spectators in the bay before the lighthouse at Marseille when he swam there, and was unanimously declared to be the best swimmer in the port. When he came up again, the light had disappeared. He must now get his bearings. Ratonneau and Pomègue are the nearest islands of all those that surround Chateau d'If, but Ratonneau and Pomègue are inhabited, as is also the islet of Dôme. Tiboulon and Le Maire were therefore the safest for Dante's venture. The islands of Tiboulon and Le Maire are a league from the Chateau d'If. Dante nevertheless determined to make for them. But how could he find his way in the darkness of the night? At this moment he saw the light of Planier gleaming in front of him like a star. By leaving this light on the right, he kept the island of Tiboulon a little on the left. By turning to the left, therefore, he would find it. But as we have said, it was at least a league from the Chateau d'If to this island. Often in prison, Faria had said to him, when he saw him idle and inactive, Dante, you must never give way to this leaselessness. You will be drowned if you seek to escape, and your strength has not been properly exercised and prepared for exertion. These words rang in Dante's ears. Even beneath the waves, he hastened to cleave his way through them to see if he had not lost his strength. He found with pleasure that his captivity had taken away nothing of his power, and that he was still master of that element on whose bosom he had so often sported as a boy. Fear, that relentless pursuer, clogged Dante's efforts. He listened for any sound that might be audible, and every time that he rose to the top of a wave he scanned the horizon and strove to penetrate the darkness. He fancied that every wave behind him was a pursuing boat, and he redoubled his exertions, increasing rapidly his distance from the chateau, but exhausting his strength. He swam on still, and already the terrible chateau had disappeared in the darkness. He could not see it, but he felt its presence. An hour passed, during which Dante, excited by the feeling of freedom, continued to cleave the waves. "'Let us see,' said he. "'I have swum above an hour.' But as the wind is against me, that has retarded my speed. However, if I am not mistaken, I must be close to Tiboulon. But what if I were mistaken? A shudder passed over him. He sought to tread water in order to rest himself. The sea was too violent, and he felt that he could not make use of this means of recuperation. Well, said he, I will swim on until I am worn out, or the cramp seizes me and then I shall sink, and he struck out with the energy of despair. Suddenly the sky seemed to him to become still darker and more dense, and heavy clouds seemed to sweep down towards him. At the same time, he felt a sharp pain in his knee. He fancied for a moment that he had been shot, and listened for the report, but he heard nothing. Then he put out his hand, and encountered an obstacle, and with another stroke knew that he had gained the shore. Before him rose a grotesque mass of rocks that resembled nothing so much as a vast fire petrified at the moment of its most fervent combustion. It was the island of Tiboulon. Dante rose 
advanced a few steps, and, with a fervent prayer of gratitude, stretched himself on the granite, which seemed to him softer than down. Then, in spite of the wind and rain, he fell into the deep, sweet sleep of utter exhaustion. At the expiration of an hour, Edmond was awakened by the roar of thunder. The tempest was let loose and beating the atmosphere with its mighty wings. From time to time, a flash of lightning stretched across the heavens like a fiery serpent, lighting up the clouds that rolled on its vast, chaotic waves. Dante had not been deceived. He had reached the first of the two islands, which was, in fact, Tiboulon. He knew that it was barren and without shelter, but when the sea became more calm, he resolved to plunge into its waves again and swim to Le Mer, equally arid but larger and consequently better adapted for concealment. An overhanging rock offered him a temporary shelter, and scarcely had he availed himself of it when the tempest burst forth in all its fury. Edmond felt the trembling of the rock beneath which he lay. The waves, dashing themselves against it, wetted him with their spray. He was safely sheltered, and yet he felt dizzy in the midst of the warring of the elements and the dazzling brightness of the lightning. It seemed to him that the island trembled to its base, and that it would, like a vessel at anchor, break moorings and bear him off into the centre of the storm. <clears throat> he then recollected that he had not eaten or drunk for four and twenty hours. He extended his hands and drank greedily of the rainwater that had lodged in a hollow of the rock. As he rose, a flash of lightning that seemed to rive the remotest heights of heaven illumined the darkness. By its light, between the island of Le Mer and Cap Croisel, a quarter of a league distant, Dante saw a fishing boat driven rapidly like a spectre before the power of winds and waves. A second after, he saw it again, approaching with frightful rapidity. Dante cried at the top of his voice to warn them of their danger, but they saw it themselves. Another flash showed him four men clinging to the shattered mast and the rigging while a fifth clung to the broken rudder. The men he beheld saw him undoubtedly for their cries were carried to his ears by the wind. Above the splintered mast, a sail rent to tatters was waving. Suddenly the ropes that still held it gave way, and it disappeared in the darkness of the night like a vast seabird. At the same moment, a violent crash was heard, and cries of distress. Dante, from his rocky perch, saw the shattered vessel, and among the fragments the floating forms of the hapless sailors. Then all was dark again. Dante ran down the rocks at the risk of being himself dashed to pieces. He listened, he groped about, but he heard and saw nothing. The cries had ceased, and the tempest continued to rage. By degrees the wind abated, vast grey clouds rolled towards the west, and the blue firmament appeared studded with bright stars. Soon a red streak became visible in the horizon. The waves whitened. A light played over them and gilded their foaming crests with gold. It was day. Dante stood mute and motionless before this majestic spectacle, as if he now beheld it for the first time. And indeed, since his captivity in the Chateau d'If, he had forgotten that such scenes were ever to be witnessed. He turned towards the fortress and looked at both sea and land. The gloomy building rose from the bosom of the ocean with imposing majesty, and seemed to dominate the scene. It was about five o'clock. The sea continued to get calmer. In two or three hours, thought Dante, the turnkey will enter my chamber, find the body of my poor friend, 
recognize it, seek for me in vain, and give the alarm. Then the tunnel will be discovered. The men who cast me into the sea and who must have heard the cry I uttered will be questioned. Then boats filled with armed soldiers will pursue the wretched fugitive. The cannon will warn everyone to refuse shelter to a man wandering about naked and famished. The police of Marseille will be on the alert by land, whilst the governor pursues me by sea. I am cold, I am hungry, I have lost even the knife that saved me. Oh my God, I have suffered enough, surely. Have pity on me, and do for me what I am unable to do for myself. As Dante, his eyes turned in the direction of the Chateau d'If, uttered this prayer, he saw off the farther point of the island of Pomeg, a small vessel with latin sails skimming the sea like a gull in search of prey, and with his sailor's eye he knew it to be a Genoese tartan. She was coming out of Marseille harbour, and was standing out to sea rapidly, her sharp prow cleaving through the waves. "'Oh!' cried Edmond. "'To think that in half an hour I could join her! Did I not fear being questioned, detected, and conveyed back to Marseille? What can I do? What story can I invent?' Under pretext of trading along the coast, these men, who are in reality smugglers, will prefer selling me to doing a good action. I must wait, but I cannot. I am starving. In a few hours my strength will be utterly exhausted. Besides, perhaps I have not been missed at the fortress. I can pass as one of the sailors wrecked last night. My story will be accepted, for there is no one left to contradict me. As he spoke, Dante looked toward the spot where the fishing vessel had been wrecked, and started. The red cap of one of the sailors hung to a point of the rock, and some timbers that had formed part of the vessel's keel floated at the foot of the crag. In an instant Dante's plan was formed. He swam to the cap, placed it on his head, seized one of the timbers, and struck out so as to cut across the course the vessel was taking. "'I am saved,' murmured he, and this conviction restored his strength." He soon saw that the vessel, with the wind dead ahead, was tacking between the Chateau d'If and the Tower of Planier. For an instant he feared lest, instead of keeping in shore, she should stand out to sea, but he soon saw that she would pass, like most vessels bound for Italy, between the islands of Jarot and Calasarene. However, the vessel and the swimmer insensibly neared one another, and in one of its tacks the tartan bore down within a quarter of a mile of him. He rose on the waves, making signs of distress, but no one on board saw him, and the vessel stood on another tack. Dante would have shouted, but he knew that the wind would drown his voice. It was then he rejoiced at his precaution in taking the timber, for without it he would have been unable, perhaps, to reach the vessel, certainly to return to shore, should he be unsuccessful in attracting attention. Dante, though, almost sure as to what course the vessel would take, had yet watched it anxiously until it tacked and stood towards him. Then... He advanced, but before they could meet, the vessel again changed her course. By a violent effort, he rose half out of the water, waving his cap and uttering a loud shout peculiar to sailors. This time he was both seen and heard, and the tartan instantly steered towards him. At the same time, he saw they were about to lower the boat. An instant after, the boat rowed by two men advanced rapidly towards him. Dante let go of the timber, which he now thought to be useless and swam vigorously to meet them. But he had reckoned too much upon his strength, and then he realized how serviceable the timber had been to him. His arms became stiff, 
His legs lost their flexibility, and he was almost breathless. He shouted again. The two sailors redoubled their efforts, and one of them cried in Italian, Courage! The word reached his ear as a wave which he no longer had the strength to surmount passed over his head. He rose again to the surface, struggled with the last desperate effort of a drowning man, uttered a third cry, and felt himself sinking, as if the fatal cannon-shot were again tied to his feet. The water passed over his head, and the sky turned grey. A convulsive movement again brought him to the surface. He felt himself seized by the hair. Then he saw and heard nothing. He had fainted. When he opened his eyes, Dante found himself on the deck of the tartan. His first care was to see what course they were taking. They were rapidly leaving the Chateau d'If behind. Dante was so exhausted that the exclamation of joy he uttered was mistaken for a sigh. As we have said, he was lying on the deck. A sailor was rubbing his limbs with a woolen cloth. Another, whom he recognised as the one who had cried out, Courage, held a gourd full of rum to his mouth, while the third, an old sailor, at once the pilot and captain, looked on with that egotistical pity men feel for a misfortune that they have escaped yesterday and which may overtake them tomorrow. A few drops of the rum restored suspended animation, while the friction of his limbs restored their elasticity. "'Who are you?' said the pilot in bad French. "'I am,' replied Dante in bad Italian, "'a Maltese sailor. "'We were coming from Syracuse, laden with grain. "'The storm of last night overtook us at the Cape Morgion, "'and we were wrecked on the rocks.' Where do you come from? From these rocks that I had the luck to cling to while our captain and the rest of the crew were all lost. I saw your vessel and fearful of being left to perish on the desolate island. I swam off on a piece of wreckage to try and intercept your course. You have saved my life and I thank you, continued Dante. I was lost when one of your sailors caught hold of my hair. It was I, said a sailor of a frank and manly appearance, and it was time, for you were sinking. Yes, returned Dante, holding out his hand. I thank you again. I almost hesitated, though, replied the sailor. You looked more like a brigand than an honest man, with your beard six inches and your hair a foot long. Dante recollected that his hair and beard had not been cut all the time he was at the Chateau d'If. Yes, said he. I made a vow to Our Lady of the Grotto not to cut my hair or beard for ten years if I was saved in a moment of danger. But today the vow expires. Now, what are we going to do with you? said the captain. Alas, anything you please. My captain is dead. I have barely escaped. But I am a good sailor. Leave me at the first port you make. I shall be sure to find employment. Do you know the Mediterranean? I have sailed over it since my childhood. You know the best harbours. There are few ports that I could not enter or leave with a bandage over my eyes. I say, Captain, said the sailor who had cried courage to Dante, if what he says is true, what hinders his staying with us? If he says true, said the captain doubtingly, but in his present condition... He will promise anything and take his chance of keeping it afterwards. I will do more than I promise, 
said Dante. We shall see, returned the other, smiling. Where are you going? asked Dante. To Leghorn. Then why, instead of tacking so frequently, do you not sail nearer the wind? Because we should run straight on to the island of Rion. You shall pass it by twenty fathoms. Take the helm, and let us see what you know. The young man took the helm, felt to see if the vessel answered the rudder promptly, and seeing that without being a first-rate sailor she yet was tolerably obedient. To the sheets, said he. The four seamen who composed the crew obeyed while the pilot looked on. All taut. They obeyed. Belay. This order was also executed, and the vessel passed, as Dante had predicted, twenty fathoms to windward. Bravo, said the captain. Bravo, repeated the sailors, and they all looked with astonishment at this man whose eye now disclosed an intelligence, and his body a vigour they had not thought him capable of showing. You see, said Dante, quitting the helm, I shall be of some use to you, at least during the voyage. If you do not leave me at Leghorn, you can leave me there, and I will pay you out of the first wages I get for my food and the clothes you lend me. Ah, said the captain, we can agree very well, if you are reasonable. Give me what you give the others, and it will be all right, returned Dante. That's not fair, said the seaman who had saved Dante, for you know more than we do. What is that to you, Jacopo? returned the captain. Every one is free to ask what he pleases. That's true, replied Jacopo. I only make a remark. Well, you would do much better to find him a jacket and a pair of trousers if you have them. No, said Jacopo, but I have a shirt and a pair of trousers. This is all I want, interrupted Dante. Jacopo dived into the hold and soon returned with what Edmond wanted. Now then, do you wish for anything else? said the patron. A piece of bread and another glass of the capital rum I tasted, for I have not eaten or drunk for a long time. He had not tasted food for forty hours. A piece of bread was brought, and Jacopo offered him the gourd. Larboard your helm, cried the captain to the steersman. Dante glanced that way as he lifted the gourd to his mouth, then paused with hand in midair. Hello, what's the matter at Chateau d'If? said the captain. A small white cloud which had attracted Dante's attention crowned the summit of the bastion of the Chateau d'If. At the same moment the faint report of a gun was heard. The sailors looked at one another. What is this? asked the captain. A prisoner has escaped from the Chateau d'If, and they are firing the alarm gun, replied Dante. The captain glanced at him, but he had lifted the rum to his lips and was drinking it with so much composure that suspicions, if the captain had any, died away. At any rate, murmured he, if it be so much the better, for I have made a rare acquisition. Under pretense of being fatigued, Dante asked to take the helm. The steersman, glad to be relieved, looked at the captain, and the latter by a sign indicated that he might abandon it to his new comrade. Dante could thus keep his eyes on Marseille. What is the day of the month? asked he of Jacopo, who sat down beside him. 
the 28th of February. In what year? In what year? You ask me in what year? Yes, replied the young man. I ask you in what year? You have forgotten then? I got such a fright last night, replied Dante, smiling, that I have almost lost my memory. I ask you what year is it? The year 1829, returned Jacopo. It was fourteen years, day for day, since Dante's arrest. He was nineteen when he entered the Chateau d'If. He was thirty-three when he escaped. A sorrowful smile passed over his face. He asked himself what had become of Mercedes, who must believe him dead. Then his eyes lighted up with hatred as he thought of the three men who had caused him so long and wretched a captivity. He renewed against Donglard, Fernand, and Villefort the oath of implacable vengeance he had made in his dungeon. This oath was no longer a vain menace, for the fastest sailor in the Mediterranean would have been unable to overtake the little tartan, that with every stitch of canvas set was flying before the wind to Leghorn. End of chapter 21